consumed by the website now. This is the third double overtime game in Predators history here in the postseason. And Keith scores to end it at 7.49. The Blackhawks successfully conclude their comeback from a 3-0 deficit to win in double overtime. The shot by Duncan I believe the year was 2008, Don. Okay. And I believe it was yourself, uh, your brother Joshua. Okay. Uh, Mrs. Castor, and myself in the beautiful city of Hartford. <laughs> okay. For her, for a Pearl Jam concert. Yes. You recall the, this event? I do. Yeah, it was a weird chain of events. Yeah, so we stayed in a hotel very near the uh, venue. Uh, and when we checked in, it happened to be... Uh, before the day of the show, we were there. I think, I think we arrived. It was the last of a four-show run we were on, and we had arrived with a day to spare. I think we laid around the hotel room and wished we had mini sticks because it was this really weird, big empty space yeah, in the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we ate Olive Garden. I think the NBA draft was that something like, weird. Oh no, maybe that we were was watching wrestling on something. like my yeah, laptop that's or right. iPad or something. Yeah, yeah. So. Because if we got there early, they never gave us like a pass to so that we'd be a pr- approved car during the event. Right. Which resulted in our car being towed, which <laughs> resulted in you and your brother walking through maybe not the most beautiful part of Hartford. No. And you uh, – your, your car was towed. I it, said that, right? Right, yep. And you had to go pick it up. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for you today, video did surface of your interaction uh, with the people. <laughs> okay, where this is going with now. the people in that garage. So I'm going to play that for you. Okay, you know you're my boy, and I don't mean to embarrass you. Right, but uh, I was so fired up, I sounded higher pitch. Probably. Right, yeah. So here, here, I have that video. I'm going to play it now. It okay. it works as audio. You okay. don't really need the visual. Right, it's just it's just on. It, if you need a picture, I can send it to you. Okay, here we go. This is Donald Russ, Hartford, Connecticut, 2008. Yep, that's all you care about is just taking people's money with no education, no skill set. Just want to clarify that. Do you feel good about your job so I could be a college dropout and do the same thing? Why have to drive a brain and you don't? Maybe if I was missing some teeth, they would hire me, huh? Oh, like yours? Well, they look so stunning. Because I'm on television and you're in a fucking trailer, honey. Lose some weight, baby girl. Wow, Don. I've known you for many years and uh, I wouldn't expect that from you. Yeah. Uh, bad day. It was a bad day for me. <laughs> I don't know if the bit of pretending that Don, that was Don is funny or worked or not, but uh, 
it is uh it is pretty hilarious that uh, that was an ESPN uh news anchor I guess uh who had her her car towed in Virginia um her name is uh Britt McHenry uh she had her her car towed in Virginia like I said and um she was not happy with the attendant there uh for what reason I don't know I don't think the attendant towed it yeah, that might be the uh, classic case of shooting the messenger there. Yeah, so uh, she has apologized, though. Well, great. Would you like to hear the apology? Sure. In an intense and stressful moment, I allowed my emotions to get the best of me and said some insulting and regrettable things. As frustrated as I was, I should always choose to be respectful and take the high road. I am sorry for my actions... And we'll learn from this mistake. Question number two. <laughs> Do you think there's anything glaringly missing from that apology? Um, did she say I'm sorry to the girl or anything? No. Oh, okay. No apology. I maybe I zoned out there. <laughs> no apology to the person she called toothless. And made fun of her shirt or something and told her to lose weight. And her education and her weight. Right. And on and on. Not a good look for uh, Britt McHenry. Now, I am always basically on the side of saying things like this should not cost people their livelihood. And I stick with that in this case. But I do think uh, Britt maybe should reach out to this girl personally. Yeah. And apologize. Yeah. ESPN PR has to be like the toughest job on the planet. I think Deutsch tweeted that today about how did he really? He's often on opposite sides of them, but he does often feel very Holy bad for them. How between people saying things on the air and people battling each other when it was Stephen A. Smith and uh, Michelle Beadle and Holy cow! It's got to be like just dealing with like kids and just being like, oh, good, shut up, just stop it. And like, how do these? It's one thing to say something stupid on the air. We're on the air for a couple hours once a week. We try not to say anything stupid. That's pretty easy. I mean, not offensive stupid. I'm sure we say stupid things. Right. But like uh, That whole bit might have completely bombed. I have no idea. But, but like, so if your job is to be in front of a microphone for hours every single day, it's, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. But, man, this wasn't in front of the microphone when she was forced to speak on something controversial. Like, how... I take it it was a cell phone video or something. Or was it was uh, a security? Like security camera. Yeah. How do you not? You're a public figure. You just have to. You're. You, she, it appears in the beginning she's looking at it. The camera itself. Br- brilliant. brilliant. It looks yeah. like it's right above her head. Uh, that your similar situation. You know, she says she was. Uh, I guess she had a tweet that was been deleted. Uh, that basically said she was. Um, she got her tar- car towed in Virginia, like I said, while she was eating dinner. Okay. Um, so I'm sure this is her going to get her car out of towing and having right. to pay. Now that happened to you in 2008. Knowing you, I'm sure your exchange with the people, despite the fact that it cost us, cost you money, right? It did not. I oh, mean, okay. The the legwork, the dirty work was kind of done on your end. Oh, getting in the hotel, someone right? from the hotel that's to right. contact someone from the impound lot. Right. So I. That's right. I don't think. Hopefully, there's no video of me 
that hotel. I don't night. think you were nasty to the girl. I remember I, I wasn't was just there, forceful. I but think. you, you kind of said to her, if the building was on fire, who would you call right now? Because right, the girl just had no idea. She right. had no protocol right. for our situation. That's right. So okay. I don't think anyone was mean. It was just a matter of like, no, I'm not going to go to the impound lot and pay the $150. Right. Here's the thing be. I do want to know, though, because back in 2008, we were nobodies. <laughs> okay. Now, she one of her quotes was, I'm in the news. Yes. Uh, having gone there, if this were to happen now, would you say, I'm, I'm in a, the podcasting yeah. industry? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> All right. I'm going to give you a negative – Yelp review, <laughs> and then a negative review on my podcast. Let's start the show. Uh, it is uh, Season 5, Episode 12, April 16, 2015. Great show today. Damon Hack, uh, who's one of our all-time favorites. Yeah. Uh, a guy who absolutely would never be in a video like that. Just no. one of the nicest guys uh, that we have uh, met through this is on. He works for Golf Channel, and he's going to talk with us about a really uh, interesting master's. Like a really interesting one. Uh, so many storylines. You know, a 21-year-old kid running away with the thing. And behind him, uh, a list full of uh, huge stars in the sport, including two guys who tied for second, Phil Mickelson and uh, Rory McIlroy, who would have won 73 out of 78 of the Masters ever played wow. with their score. So yeah, just a that. ton of great stuff to talk about with Damon. And uh, we also have an interview with a new uh, second time on, and the first time he was on, it went over great. He's great. His name is Mike Halford, and he writes for Pro Hockey Talk, uh, which is a branch of Pro Football Talk, which is now owned by NBC. Uh, if you want a really great sports app that's perfect for the shitter, the Pro Talk, the NBC Sports Talk app is might be the best. Really? You download it. It lists like all the different... You know, because they now have pro football, pro hockey, baseball talk, college talk. They got them all. You can organize them. And you just – it's quick articles. You go from one to another. Perfect for shit. Uh, Mike's going to be on the show to talk about the NHL playoffs. Uh, a quick book club update, kind of a transitional week with that. And we'll end uh, with one last thing. Uh, last week, uh, Andrew Buckholtz, first time in. Do you like him? Yeah. Yeah, he was fun. I liked him too. Uh, and Robert Mish – uh, great guy did not let me get a word in. <laughs> he is very passionate about the book he wrote, and I mentioned it in the book club update today. Uh, so I did not get to say much, but a great guy and really a lot of good information. If you ever wanted to know, if you wanted to read the book Eleven Heaven, you could listen to this interview and very clearly decide yes or no. There was no uh, no gray area there, I don't think. Uh, that was last week's show. Here's what we got the next two weeks. Will Leach was supposed to be on today so we could finally talk some baseball since like teams have played like 10 games and we haven't had a guest on yet. But because of my scheduling, we couldn't do it, and he's nice enough to do it next week. Also, I believe Jeff Passan is going to be on next week, and we're going to have to reach out to Jenny Ventress from the Monday Morning Quarterback who oh, yeah. has a cover story. Regional cover story sure. on Rex Ryan and the Bills. So hopefully we can arrange all that for next week. And then the following week, really, we need to do a big uh, NFL draft show, right? Yes. So it's a busy couple weeks. NHL and NBA playoffs are going to go on. Maybe we got to get – we haven't had Tess Mellis in here, I don't think, at all this NBA season. Uh, there's a lot going on, finally. We had that, that, that lull. Right. And uh, it's picking up. So – uh, let's not waste any more time and do three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. 
count of three. One. Alrighty, I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever! <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep! Now let's move on to other business. Alright. On the sportscasters, on a day like today, there's nowhere to start other than the NHL playoffs. Our interview with Mike Halford later was recorded on the morning of the first day of the playoffs. So we won't be able to get in to a few things that happened in the game ones with him. Right. Uh, but uh, Don and I can do it now. And the best place to start, uh, well, let's, let's back up half a step. Okay. We talked last week about who might get in. Okay. We know who got in. Uh, are you happy as a fan with the way it worked out? You know, Pittsburgh instead of Boston. Yeah, and I mean, maybe one more Canadian team instead of LA. I may have said or alluded to this last week, but um, and lottery aside, just strictly from a playoff uh, vantage point. Well, right, that's what yeah. I was going to say. Not to talk about the lottery, but I've been so last place centric that I don't know that I have followed teams enough. I know I haven't followed enough to make uh, decisions, unless they're just really difficult this year, because picking a bracket was really tough, I thought. No, I think everyone's struggling. Down Goes Brown was joking, has been joking about it on Twitter, how hard it is to pick these series. Yeah, so... And the standings reflect it, too. Yeah. Um, Especially in the West. So who are we talking about? Calgary got in. Yeah, I think basically it was Pittsburgh got in instead of Boston. Right. And uh, Calgary, I suppose, got in instead of L.A. I think Boston's on a way on a team on the way down. I think Pittsburgh maybe is slightly too, but I think the playoffs are better with Crosby in it. I don't expect them to win the series, so I'm happy with. But it's cool. Calgary's young, so they're kind of cool. Who do they knock out? L.A. Pro- L.A. Right? probably yeah. That's a push, I guess. I mean, do you yeah. want to see a cool young team, or do you want to see a team that could maybe go from eighth and win it all? But, right. Uh, we're talking before we came on about advanced stats. I think the Kings are the first team ever to lead the league since they started recording those stats, to miss the playoffs entirely. Lead the league in what specifically? Corsi I think or it's possession. possession. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, with that said, I think we got some really good first-round matchups, and we saw some of that last night with Montreal and Ottawa having a crazy game one. First of all, 4-3 to three hockey in front of one of the best crowds in the NHL. Uh, the Bell Center is an unbelievable arena. I've been there twice. Not for hockey, but for concerts. And I can tell you that despite its size, it really has a old-school arena feel. It's so loud in there. Um, I don't know if it's maybe a low ceiling, but there's just something about that place. The energy there is incredible uh, for a concert. I can't imagine what it's like for hockey. And last night they had a classic game that will be remembered for uh, what happened with P.K. Subban and a slash on Stone the hottest and best scorer, probably the rookie of the year this year. I know. Year. Who's, who, who is this kid? Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I know he's got 20 gonna, some odd goals. He's going to either beat out Johnny Gaudreau or just finish second to Johnny Gaudreau in rookie right. of the year this year. Uh, he's a guy like that team, really, who caught fire, what, in January or something. Right. You know, they had, what, some kind of like 28-3-3 and run just to get in? Yeah. Not sure. I mean... But what do you think of the slash? I think it's bad. I five in a game, okay with you? 
I'm fine with him getting thrown out. I'm shocked it happened. Um, now you know it was a rule thing, right? That I don't know. What is okay. the rule? It's so basically, the rule I heard is, rule sixty one thrown out. Yeah, there. if you give a five minute major on a slash, and there's an injury, you have to give a misconduct. Okay, so that's why they were saying that. And Montreal fans were kind of pissed because he came back, right? But really, he didn't come back. Right. I think he played one or two shifts and then played when they pulled the goalie. And that's why I you get a lot of old school guys saying this is playoff hockey. That's why I wouldn't have had a problem if they suspended him for a game or two also. Because, it, sure, Stone might play through this, but this might be the type of thing that affects him the entire series And I now. think it's just a slash we don't want in the game, to be honest. The puck I li- was nowhere near him. I like P.K. Subban. Yeah. Uh, and I think he's a really important star for the league. Right, sure. Uh, you know what I mean? And... Uh, our, the guy we've had on before, I talk about a lot, Mike Shope. I was listening to him on the drive over here. He just said he's just he's too cool a player for that. Like, yeah, just get that part out of your game. He's just so emotional. I think though, too. Yeah, emotions get the best of him, which was part of. Uh, it was a weird one though, because it was just a guy that skated. He wasn't in the crease or and anything. And it was a uh, you know, it was a uh, it was an ugly slash. And I don't know what the status of Stone is going to be going forward. I'm sure he's gonna give it a go. What? It's a fracture, I guess, a microfracture. Yeah, a microfracture, something like that. They're Whatever it. that means exactly. Did you see the play earlier? It might have happened. It might have been, I'm looking at the uh, penalty summary, two-minute high sticking uh, on Lars Eller. Was that the butt end? Like, I thought that was kind of a pretty dirty play. Like, he just happened to miss him with a pretty nasty butt end. The cool thing is that was game one. If this goes yeah. long, yeah. this is going to be a really old-school, uh, nasty uh, series. The Islanders got off to a great start over the Capitals. Uh, I like the Canadians, by the way, in that series. You going with that too? I know you said you don't think no, the Canadians I, I, are a good team. You know what? I'm I'm not sure how much I like the Senators either. I thought because they were essentially on one of the best runs I've ever seen a hockey team go on that I, I picked the Ottawa to win it. I think it'll be a six or seven game series. Um, my, they're gonna. <laughs> The reason playing I, in Montreal is so hard. Yeah, very hard, and uh, that's part of what makes Montreal good. By the way, right? And you're gonna that game was in Montreal, right? Yep. Okay. Of course, they're the number one. Right. Right. Well, the number one seed in that bracket, right. I suppose. Okay. The Rangers are the number one overall. So, the PK Subban call, notwithstanding, five minute major, which I don't believe they scored on. They might have scored once. Did they e- get one? either way? Okay. Subban high stick someone in the face, and it looked like they were going to call a penalty, and like they talked about it and didn't call it. Like he was trying to play a puck. Is that why they didn't call it? I mean, you're allowed to try to play the puck. Maybe if he hits it, hits the puck. Yeah, and a follow through or something like that. Uh, like, yeah, I, I don't know. That's, that's just a gray that's area. a tough building to get calls in. And uh, yeah. I, I know our talk off the air was like, I said that they're not a good team, and I kind of dismissed Price as the goalie, and that, that's a good argument. The goalie is part of the team, so. And what's his name? Hamid, who had been so good, looked a little shaky in that game. Which maybe is to be expected. He doesn't right. have the experience. I mean, I guess he almost got Price away has. with a game that wasn't his best. I you mean, know, it was a tight game. The one thing that is always going to keep me a little bit at arm's length from advanced stats is the argument that a 50-win team like Montreal uh, isn't a uh, good team. It's always going to be hard for me to bridge that gap. I don't want to spend too much time on this because there's eight right. series, but I struggle with that. So well, let's see uh, where they go. 
You know, wasn't Anaheim the team that was supposed to be the not good team last year? And they were basically a win away from yeah. the conference finals. Yep. So, I don't know. Montreal wasn't a good team last year, advanced stats-wise, either. And they, they won a round or two, right? They got that, that kind of lucky break against uh, Tampa, not having Bishop. Oh, that's But then right. they did beat Boston. Right. Uh, what else? Uh, the Islanders and Capitals, I think, is going to be a really good series. I'd really like to see the Capitals. I mean, the Islanders are a fun, young team, too. I'd like to see the Islanders just because I'd love to see a nice long run to close out their time in Long Island. Yeah, that's cool, too. I'd like to see just Ovechkin do something I wish they the weren't playing in the first round. Yeah. You know, yeah. I wish both of these guys would be around for a bit. That's going to be a fun series to watch. Islanders got off to a good start there. Uh, Blackhawks and Nashville played a, a classic. Uh, Nashville got up 3 nothing. Chicago tied it. Uh, and then won it in double overtime. Yeah, I conked out before overtime. Bad loss for but, Nashville. But I did hear that overtime was great, too. It was incredible. Like, I Nashville think hockey, had 17 shots in the first overtime. Yeah, I mean, I think hockey fans have rose-tinted glasses sometimes, and I'm one of them when it comes to long overtimes because a lot of times they're not very good. They're kind of like two teams that don't want to make a mistake, and then like the final goal is some fluky bouncing puck or something like that. But I heard this one was not that at all. It was a great up and down overtime. Yeah. So. Uh, the scary thing for Nashville, I think, is Kane was not Kane last night. And he, he still, still had two assists. He's going to only get better as it goes. Uh, the worst game probably of the night was Calgary and Vancouver. It's really slow the first two periods. Uh, a good third period. Calgary led the NHL in third period goals, uh, which I guess isn't an advanced stat. Because I know this is another team that doesn't fare well there, but they scored two more third period goals and That's weird. won the game. Uh, so uh, I don't know. It's uh, the other series getting ready to start uh, blues and wild. That's really interesting. A lot of former Sabres in that one. Yeah. I don't think I ultimately did it, but that's one of those teams. Like You want to pick the wild. I wanted way. to pick Minnesota yeah. a little bit, not just because of the Sabres, but because like they're kind of good everywhere, you know, like, they, they could make a pretty run. Pretty good forward. They're a team good under the radar, D. I think, that could make a run. Yeah, so I think when I started filling out my brackets, they were the first team I had winning the cup, and then I changed it around. And uh, Also out west, the other one that's going to get going is Ducks and Winnipeg, which is another kind of surprisingly hard one to call, only be because... Is this another one that Winnipeg is just a hard place to play? Yes. Yeah. I think this is one that might go seven, and the Ducks might have to win all four at home to win it. You feel like the Ducks, I mean, they had a great year again this year, but, I mean, their window has to be closing a little bit, right? Well, they're a team that's really interesting because they're built around top-line stars, right? Right, and those so guys are getting older. So if you don't get older. those top-line stars being top-line players, what kind of team are you? Sure. They do have some younger guys below that maybe are emerging, but I don't know if they're going to be Ryan Getzlaff, per se. Right. Uh, also in the East, we're going to have uh, Tampa and Detroit, and we talked a little bit about the Rangers-Pittsburgh, which... Uh, you really think the Rangers will have no problem, but anytime you have Crosby, you have the quote unquote puncher's chance, right? Maybe sure. like maybe like a goalie can st- steal a series. Maybe Crosby and Malkin can offensively steal a series. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, but that's what Pittsburgh has to hope. I without just Latang. I've talked about this plenty of times, but I th- I think Crosby. I mean, he's got a cup and a, and another loss in the Cup Finals, but and this is not a knock on Crosby at all. I just think that he would have been better off pretty much anywhere. I just there's no depth around him. I mean, but like you said, he's that good. Malkin's almost that good. Gives you good. a puncher's chance. Yep. Yep. Uh, 
quick cup pick. What do you got? What are you gonna go with? Uh, I think I have Tampa Bay, and I know I did a bracket. I, I think I have Tampa Bay winning it. I'm gonna Tampa go, Bay Chicago. Maybe. I'm gonna go Rangers Chicago. Yeah. I know that's a somewhat generic one, but I want to see that one a lot. I, I, I tried to stay away from picking Chicago because it feels almost like a homer pick because of Kane. And right. it's, it's just a front runner pick, kind of. But I think I ended up ultimately going with Chicago and uh, Tampa Bay. Yeah, I'm going to go Rangers and, and, and Hawks, and I'll pick the Rangers and Lundqvist to finally uh, get a cup. All right, we'll talk more about the NHL playoffs later with uh, Mike Halford. The NBA playoffs start, and the NHL gets criticized a lot, especially this year, about its tanking. Did you see the really weird I heard situation there was a game. I didn't see it, but the yesterday Heat and with somebody the Heat else? and the Sixers? No. Where basically whoever lost the game would get an First. extra lottery pick. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. The Heat would be able to keep their pick if they were in the lottery. Uh, they wouldn't be able to keep the pick. Oh, kind of uh, some conditional? A protected type of a oh, thing. Oh, okay. Uh, but interestingly enough, I believe the Heat won, but were able to still keep their pick because then they got help. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I think it was Brooklyn winning. So it worked out for everybody. Right. So Brooklyn got the eighth seed. The Heat are out. And uh, Atlanta is the number one in the East. Cleveland is the number two. Of course, the storyline in the East is going to be LeBron and Cleveland. Yeah. And can LeBron bring a championship? Do you root Cleveland? for that? As a, sure. Some people call that like our, our brothers and losing kind of. Like yeah, I think just, the cities are cousins. Yeah, yeah. I think cousins and cousins sure, something like that. Yeah. To some degree. Uh, sure, go Cleveland. Why not? Yeah, I have no allegiance to say Milwaukee right. or uh, the Atlanta Hawks. Yeah, so yeah, I'll go for uh, Cleveland and uh, out west Golden State, who's a really cool and fun team to watch. I mean, Steph Curry uh, is unbelievable. There was a video online yesterday of him making seventy-seven, I think, three pointers in a row in practice. Oh yeah, which is pretty pretty impressive to see a guy swishing seventy plus. Uh, three pointers consecutively without taking a breath. <laughs> yeah, my uh, my basketball fandom back when I was a kid uh, probably went as far as to like which starter jacket I owned and which basketball cards I owned. So I was always kind what of starter like, jacket. Did you own the Charlotte? I think I Hornets? had a Charlotte Hornets one. Of course you did. Right, because I everyone liked yeah. uh, Larry Johnson, Johnson yeah. and liked that color. Sure, that was a very nineties color and that purple. Teal, yeah. yeah, and. Uh, so I had a lot of like Larry Johnson basketball cards, and, and I also the other guy was Chris Weber. So I had a lot of gold. So I don't know if I had to pick a team. I guess it'd be the Warriors. But that's based on almost nothing. We very admittedly don't have the depth of knowledge to discuss this the way we just discussed the NHL playoffs. I just hear that the bottom teams never ever win. But we will absolutely get help sure. from some really great people who we bring in, whether it's Lee or Tass or Chris Ballard. Whoever there was some sort of uh, article talk about this more. Yeah, there was some sort of article put out that talks about luck in sports and how it relates to upsets. And they said basketball has almost none, so the best teams almost always win. And hockey, you get it's low scoring and you get some weird bounces. So you, that's why you'll end up with eighth place teams winning. And they're just lower scoring games lead themselves to tighter matchups to begin with. But I guess in basketball, there's almost never upsets. Let me put it this way to you. From zero percent to a hundred percent of the minutes, if the fi- <laughs> if the final 
is Golden State versus Cleveland. What percentage of the minutes in that series do you think you watch? Uh, probably not a ton. I do watch the game. No, no, no. Le- just, just follow me for a minute. Okay. The, uh, the uh, final is Golden State. So you're saying it's game seven or? The series. Let's say, we'll, we'll assume they go seven games. Okay. Golden State plays Cleveland. What percentage from zero to 100 of it do you watch? In game seven? No. Oh, of the whole series? Yes. What percentage? Oh, boy. Of the whole series would probably be pretty low. Okay, so throw so out a number. let's say... I want to make a point here, and you're crushing me. Ten, 12% of it. If the final is Golden State versus Atlanta, no, what percentage? If you it see was, where I was right, going now? Yeah, God, gotcha. Fuck. Fucker. Uh, I'm not good at improv. What is it? Yes and, right? Uh, yeah, so I think uh, the NBA this year is is really hoping Cleveland wins the East because I don't think Atlanta is a huge draw. And I'm sure they'd be okay with Chicago too. Um, right, look at it. Uh, but I don't the Lakers think they are terrible. Atlanta, and the they Lakers missed, didn't make it. And yeah. Boston missed too, right? No, Boston's a seven seed. They'll start against Cleveland. Okay, I'm looking which at I'm just, sure it'll be a huge I'm looking at just today's game. Series. And uh, Golden State. Uh, is probably very attractive. San Antonio, obviously attractive as well. Right. Uh, so the West is loaded as it always is. The Bulls have some pull in the East. Yeah. Third thing, moving on. Quick football. Two stories. We talked about it last week uh, when we did the show. The verdict or the, the verdict was in question. The jury was uh, deliberating. It went very long, so long I thought there might be a hung jury. In the end, Hernandez guilty of first-degree murder uh, and... Uh, no chance of parole. Yeah, life in prison, yep. Thanks for coming. See you later, right? Yeah. Well, John Wertheim had a great tweet. No murder weapon, no motive, no witnesses, no reasonable doubt, though. Really? There was virtually just no reasonable yeah. doubt. Uh, the jury said they were baffled by the defense, especially I the admission that he was on the scene when they basically didn't have proof of that. Oh, really? Because I... I- I should almost shouldn't even say things like this that I don't remember exactly. But I could have swore I saw that Bob Kraft testified and had an alibi for him or something like that. But I, I might be mis misremembering. You a did remember correctly that he testified. I almost am certain he was called by the prosecution to so say I that doubt, he thinks. Okay, I he doubt no he would have presented an okay, alibi. For gotcha. Him. Uh, the other thing, football wise, I wanted to bring up was Adrian Peterson was reinstated today. Uh, so he will play 16 games somewhere, barring injury next year. He faces no further discipline. He is still fighting uh, with the NFL um, about, pay? about how many paychecks they're going to take, whether it be three or six or none. All right, here, here's what you do if you're Adrian Peterson. You drop that fight or... And move on. And move on. I mean, Michael Vick is nobody's poster boy as far as like good Samaritan goes, but he handled a terrible situation as best as you could. Like Adrian should get out in front of this or, uh, well, I think now that legal things are falling away, right? It'll be interesting to see what kind of Adrian Peterson we get going forward. What, what are the things he's going to say? What is he going to be like? My question for you, not your team per se, because maybe your team specifically doesn't need him, Right. But as it stands right now, would you want Adrian Peterson on your team? Would you Boy. be ready to root for Adrian Peterson as the star of your team, or you do you need to still hear more, 
or is it a case where it doesn't even matter what's said? You're, he's a no starter for you. I think it depends a little bit where you fall on the the NFL as a privilege thing. Um, if if you're okay with guys serving their time or now legally nobody thinks right. that he's abused he that privilege. Right. And the NFL exhausted every option to try to punish him further. Right. I mean, they didn't even take a paycheck from him. So to some degree, other than missing time, he didn't miss anything. But that said, I am kind of of the belief that it's easy to buy that Adrian is just was ignorant, stupid, whatever, like just raised a certain way and took it too far and a guy that can be rehabilitated. So if he comes out, like I said, get in front of it, give some money to a battered women and children's shelter type, something like that. Um, say all the right things. Then yeah, he'll be forgiven. His biggest problem is, uh, might be his age. I mean, he's 30. He's still, it's going to be a young 30 though. Sure. Yeah. Uh, he did miss a whole year. He just missed he a missed whole year. ACL you got to figure he's going to be fresh. Right. Um, this isn't Ray Rice. Didn't play a ton in college with Ray Rice. It's easy not to, not to have to make that decision because okay, this guy is on the downside anyway. Just stay away yeah. from it. Someone's going to make that call. I'd be okay with it as a fan. Um, I, we've talked enough about it. I, I don't like that football makes me make those decisions, but it does. And he'll land somewhere for Th- sure. Thirty's always been a tough age for running backs, but this is absolutely a different case. Just we don't strictly, know for sure what kind of Adrian Peterson. Strictly football. Where do get. you think he lands? Uh, Do they have his rights? Oh, he's under contract to Minnesota. So they're gonna someone's gonna have to trade for yes. him. Do you think they caught him, Minnesota? No. So he just might play for Minnesota. Yeah, I don't think there's any way salary cap wise they'd ever cut him. They might just have to. They might they just mi- have to play. They there. might both have to suck it up. Yeah. Or hope Dallas steps in. But didn't they trade for somebody? It was somebody that wasn't impressive, right? I mean, it's not Adrian Peterson. Right. Dallas well, wants Adrian. They lost Peterson. to Marco Murray and replaced him with somebody on. I think, and I think their plan is maybe to try to draft a guy to replace Murray. I don't think sure. they have the. The guy they think is going to get all the carries on the team yet. Yeah, that might. That's probably right. All right, we are going to uh, take a break and come back with Damon Hack. Our next guest is from Los Angeles, California, and is a graduate of UCLA. He spent some time covering the San Francisco 49ers for the Sacramento Bee, the New York Knicks for Newsday, and moved on to cover golf in the NFL for the New York Times. He spent several years at Sports Illustrated as a senior writer before uh, moving to the Golf Channel, uh, where he is today. He's making his ninth appearance on the show. It's one of our all-time favorites, uh, one of the nicest guys there is. A warm sportscasters, welcome to Damon Hack. What's going on, Damon? Steve, how you doing, man? Great to be with you again. Oh, yeah, we missed you. It's good to have you. I tell you this every year, but nothing makes me sadder than opening up the Sports Illustrated after the first uh, week of the NFL season and not having a Damon Hack gamer in there. <laughs> I appreciate that, buddy. I tell you, I've gotten that a little bit over the years. Every now and then I'll meet somebody and they'll recognize the name more from from SI and from TV, and then uh, we'll reminisce about that. I I still keep an eye on the NFL. In fact, uh, I was reading uh, Jenny Rentis has a great article uh, that's on yeah. the regional cover in Buffalo on 
um, Rex Ryan coming to town, and you saw you know Thurman Thomas and Jim Kelly embracing the hire. Uh, I've met Doug Whaley. In fact, Doug Whaley I met at uh, an NFL owners meeting in Orlando, and he's a golfer. A lot of these guys are some there's some you know some overlap between the NFL and, and golf. You got uh, guys like Marvin Lewis as a charity event, Bruce Arians as a charity event, and Doug. I know every year goes to uh, goes either a Pebble Beach or goes somewhere a very famous uh, golf resort with some buddies and does a buddy trip annually. So uh, even though I don't cover the NFL day to day anymore like I used to, I still every now and then get to have some uh, some throwback type of days and reminisce about the league or meet people involved in the league that love golf. Yeah, you know it's interesting because you talk about people who uh, who want who miss you from football. My brother is probably a bigger golf fan. And, uh, you know, he's never, he's like, I don't ever want to lose Damon, you know, like (laughs) he wakes up every day at school. He gets your show on in the morning. It's like, you know, I remember waking up to go to school. I'd turn sports center on. He's such a big golf guy that he turns on, on your show in the morning there. And, uh, he is just a lucky kid too. He just got back from the masters, which I know we're going to talk about. Yeah. So this is the life he lives. He goes to Yale, you know, he played hockey there and, um, Pretty much every year he's been there, it's either been we get to go to the Frozen Four, which they did the one time and they won it, or one of the wealthy families on campus just squires him to the Masters. So that's a, that's a good connection to have and to maintain. That's unbelievable. One of the right? hardest tickets, as you know, in sports to get. That, yeah. that is a, that's a nice uh, a nice plan that he has gone. Yeah, he practically sleeps on the course. You know, because they have a place right on there, and then they they get to go out and set their chairs up before anyone comes in, and uh, you know they'll be watching TV and they'll be putting on the one hole, and you know there he is right against the rope. It's like, oh my god, this kid! But uh, it's amazing, it's amazing what the Masters is and what it's been, and how it's one of those lasting sports events that is a throwback type of event where you you put your chairs down and you know it's going to be there. You can walk around the course; the chair will be there. When you get back, there's no running, there's no cell phones. It's uh, it's about as old school a sporting event as you can get to. Yeah, I, I, I was listening to Howard Stern yesterday, and someone called up, and he's like, yeah, I said Baba Booey. They threw me right out of there. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly right. No Baba Booey. No Baba Booey. Uh, at at uh, Magnolia Lane, that's for sure. Yeah, so, you know, as someone who's a casual golf fan and, you know, absolutely loves the majors and loves following the sport. This is an unbelievably fascinating tournament for a few reasons. Uh, one is obviously the champion and just the dominance and the wire to wire, which is something that I guess not even Tiger did in his most dominant tournament there in 97. Uh, but also what was also interesting was kind of this big pack below him that was just filled with names, filled with stars and guys who are having weekends that would win 73 of 78 Masters and yet never at any point feeling like they had any chance to win it. Can you remember anything quite like that dynamic? The only thing that comes to mind is, is Rory of late in 2011, uh, actually in both 2011 at the U.S. Open at Congressional and in 2012 at the PGA at Kiowa when he won his second major. But even those two, you didn't have the firepower. Tiger, for example, didn't even play in the 2011 United States Open. So to see, uh, to see you know, Justin Rose and to see Tiger and to see 
still, you, you had quality, Rory, you had quality behind Jordan Spieth. You had Jordan Spieth kick up on Sunday and toss up his lead. All of us said, you know what? You're 21 years old. You're, you're seeing Hall of Famers and future Hall of Famers and, and some of the best players of all time chasing you, and you're holding steady and strong. It's really one of the great performances, not only because of his youth, but because of who was chasing him. And, and we may be seeing a, a changing of the guard. I mean, we still believe it's the Roy McIlroy era, but you may put a slash and put McIlroy slash speed. Yeah, and I, I want to talk about uh, McElroy and Spieth in uh, the potential rivalry in a second. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about Woods um, because a lot of times I can kind of just be like, eh, I don't want to waste time talking about someone that everyone's talking about. Kind of I'm over it in a way. But this is what I, would, what I thought about him this weekend. I went from on Thursday thinking, you know, why is he even here to – at some point, maybe on Friday or Saturday, thinking, wow, the last time we seen this guy, he was maybe at a point that we have never seen him in terms of lows. Uh, and for him to work, obviously, as hard as he did uh, to get back and to really play a really good tournament um, and, you know, he wasn't technically in contention but if you take that first guy out of it and you play Sunday again, he's very much in contention. And who knows uh, what kind of charge he, he might make. Um, but it was, he's just so polarizing. And this weekend was another example of it because for the first time in a long time, I kind of got the impression like, wow, maybe there is a few more majors in there. Someone who's very much a doubter and has very much been saying – for a while now that it's done, it's over. He's not, he might win one more. He might have another, you know, 86 Nicholson type weekend, but him as a real serious contender week in, week out might be over. And I don't know. I might've changed my mind a little bit this weekend because man, did he improve quite a bit from last time I seen him? And, you know, this is just the first of four majors this year. And I wonder if I'm more confident about him than I've been in a long time. Where do you stand? Oh, for sure. I mean, Tiger was looking like a 10 to 12 handicap the last time we saw him in Phoenix. He shot 82. Uh, and then, of course, he went to San Diego, played 11 holes, and withdrew because of a bad back. But he was also still struggling with his short game. Then to see that transition really tells you, or at least it reminds us, about who we're dealing with. We're dealing with someone who's not human in terms of somebody who won 79 PGA Tour events and 14 major championships. And, and when you put that into perspective, Phil Mickelson has 42 PGA Tour wins and is a legend. But look at the guys, you know, Jim Furyk has 16 wins. Keegan Bradley has one major championship. Ernie Els is a four-time major champ. I, I think, you know, it, it just is a reminder of how great Tiger Woods is, how legendary his career has been. And, yes, he has not won a major since 2008 not won a golf tournament since 2013, but what a remarkable, to me, you know, short of speed, and speed is, is the headline, as he should be, but the subhead is Tiger Woods back from the dead because a lot of us in the media and even some former coaches like Hank Haney said Tiger has the yips and he's going to have to deal with it. And I think the biggest shock beyond Jordan Speed winning his first major in such quality fashion was that Tiger Woods, it's not the last chapter that we're seeing. It may be the second to last chapter. He's healthy. 
the short game he said is once again a strength. And I think you're right that you know we're at the beginning of the major championship season, and now suddenly Tyler looks like a legitimate contender to at least you know maybe have a good week at St Andrews where he's won twice before in 2000 and 2005, and maybe have a good week at the Players Championship which he's won twice. It's 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 completely changed the conversation in golf. You have Jordan Spieth now kind of siling up with Rory McIlroy, but you also have Tiger Woods saying, "Hey, you know what?" I'm not finished yet. I worked harder than any of you will ever know. And uh, and I'm back, at least in the conversation, which a lot of us thought maybe he was not even going to be a part of anymore. Yeah, and you know, several times we the media in general have said Tiger Woods is back, right? I mean, that's a narrative that comes up a lot of times. And every one of those times I have said, come on, that doesn't make him back. The only thing that makes him back is winning one of the four tournaments that even Tiger Woods said are the only reason those guys play, to win majors. You know, someone like Tiger Woods several times in his career has said, you know, to me it's about winning majors, you know, getting the records, you know, the legacy of it. And I've held him to that really firmly. But this weekend, uh, it felt different to me. And I did feel a little bit bad that for as well as he played and for him even bringing a guy like me around – Still, a lot of the conversation surrounding him was, A, mocking him, saying he's Dr. Woods because of whatever happened with his wrist and him talking about putting a bone in. And then, B, this unnecessary scrutiny of him swearing after a missed shot, which I know isn't a bad look, but every single person who criticizes Tiger Woods for dropping an F-bomb after shanking a shot has absolutely done it hundreds of times at their local course because nothing is more humbling and frustrating than golf. So that, that bugs me for him. It really does. Well, it shows you how Tiger Woods remains polarizing. He was polarizing uh, at times, even before the scandal, because of his behavior on the golf course. And, you know, he's not Byron Nelson, that's for sure. He, you know, he's, even Phil Mickelson, uh, I've never seen him throw a club or, or you know, Roy McIlroy threw his club in the water. Jordan Spieth last year slammed his club on 10 fairway at Augusta National, took some heat for it, um, for me and from others. But, but Tiger, nobody has been the, the lightning rod, especially since the scandal. The, the factions in the Tiger corner, love or hate, they, they've gone to their respective corners and never, you know, shall the two meet. I mean, if, if you love Tiger, you love him even more now, and you feel like you have hope, and if you don't, you know, you think he's a scoundrel, and, and it's, it's uh, but but every now and then, and for me, and I think for a lot of people, we want to see greatness be great. You want to see Joe Montana complete the path. You want to see Willie Mays hit the home run, and you want to see Tiger Woods, you know, be Tiger Woods. So if you're a sports fan and a golf fan, you know, regardless of how you feel about him as a human being and a person, if you want to see greatness be great, that's why we watch, and I think it gives the sports fan, the general sports fan, who maybe doesn't really watch golf except when Tiger's in contention, say, hey, you know what? I'm going to tune in now a little bit more because Tiger is not ready to, to say goodbye just yet. Yeah, you know, there was that cool moment uh, on Wednesday, I guess, when Nicholas had the uh, hole-in-one in the par three. Right. And, and uh, almost a minute later, Woods just missed one. And to me, it was like, like, I thought of this just sort of like, hey, don't forget that this this uh, this this story that 
that we've shelved a little bit in the last two years, it's still there. You know, Jack, Tiger is still right behind Jack. You know, even if it's it right now in the form of one getting the hole in one and just missing one, uh, mere minutes apart on the broadcast, um, that still exists somewhere to me. I, I, oh, for sure, the yeah. legends are legends for a reason, right? You know that that's uh, that's why that's why they're that's why they're who they are, and and only a handful of people, uh, you know, that have played that game, and maybe only Tiger, but you can argue Jack and Hogan and Snead. They're only a handful. It's it's a, it's a small table. It's a short list of guys who can say they they have known what it feels like to play golf at that level to be scrutinized every swing, every shot. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a small, it's a small hand and a, and a, and a short list. <laughs> you know, uh, you mentioned, uh, Phil and the great weekend he had. I mean, he's another one of those guys that, you know, would have been in a playoff in 73 of the 78 masters, uh, based on the score he finished with this weekend. I think I have that stat, right? Uh, something close to that. Uh, did he say something about where he still stands in terms of, uh, being a player in these big tournaments? Because I don't remember him having that strong of a season last year in terms of the majors. For sure. Basically, for guys like Phil, for guys like Tiger, and even for guys like Rory now, the majors are going to pique their interest more than the other tournaments. The guys, they like to win. They want to win every time they tee it up. But the major championships, give them a bounce in their step, especially for Phil at Augusta National and, of course, the U.S. Open, which he needs to complete the career grand slam, but especially Augusta National because it's where he won his first major after all those close calls, right. finally breaking through at age 33 in 2004. And because of his swing being long, because he hasn't lost much distance off the tee, he could be someone like a Fred Couples who, you know, didn't make the cut this last Masters but has, you know, traditionally well into his 50s. Still going to be competitive around Augusta National. Most observers think for a long, long time. Do you think? Let's just give. Let's just have a hypothetical for the fun of it. Let's just say he wins the U.S. Open this year. It gives him the career Grand Slam, multiple Masters, what ten second place finishes or something like that at, a, at majors. Uh, clearly, he's the second best golfer in the Tiger Woods era. Uh, but where does that put you historically when you look uh, at a Phil Mickelson uh, legacy? It puts them firmly in the top 10. Wow. I think right now you can make an argument he's on the edge of the top 10, maybe a top 15 player of all time. Uh, his number five, you know, if he gets that sixth major, would tie him with Sir, with Sir Nick Faldo, for example. Right now, five. Seve Ballesteros has five. Um, but six, a career grand slam, he'd be the sixth to do it. And, you know, Rory had his chance to do it this week. He wasn't able to do it. So now... The eye turns to Phil, and, and I tell you what, Phil would would be firmly in the top ten, already a World Golf Hall of Famer. But when you consider that only five men have done it before, and that he would join them, it, it would put him at that level. You're talking Gene Saracen, you're talking Ben Hogan, you're talking Tiger Woods, you're talking Jack Nicklaus, and you're talking Gary Player. And, and Phil Mickelson would be the sixth ever to do it. And I tell you what, his name wouldn't look funny there. He's, he's uh, he is a an absolute savant with a golf club in his hand. Uh, six worker of finishes at a U.S. Open. It's the one he most desperately wants to win. Let's talk about the winner uh, for a while. And I, blown away for sure. Uh, Twenty one years old. Um, I think I watched a video this weekend of him at fourteen. You know, talking about 
his goal of winning the Masters. Had a good tournament there last year before fading late. Uh, I mean, it's one of the best performances. I mean, I always think of 97 and Tiger. That always comes to mind. And I believe it's the same four-day score, right? 240, was that right? Correct. That's exactly right. I mean, this this performance, I mean, it wasn't the 12-shot victory. Right. Um, but it was an 18-under par score equaling Tiger. If not for that missed short putt, you have the all-time scoring record at the Masters. This this is this is an unexpected story. Yes, Jordan Spieth was playing well. He won the Valspar, had two hundred finishes after that. But for him to come into Augusta National and absolutely hold off a, a field of of Hall of Famers and future legends, it kind of makes us rewrite where we are in golf right now. We've kind of given the air to, to Roy McIlroy, and and this is this is a young man who comes from a strong family, a sister of special needs, autism spectrum, uh, who is so level-headed, who is so mature, well beyond his years, that this isn't a fluke. Jordan Spieth is here to stay. And, and for me to have a number one player who's age 25 and a number two player in the world, and Jordan Spieth is 21, right. never happened before in, in the history of the official world golf ranking, that's what people want to see. They want rivalries. They want storylines. And in, in, in Tiger being 39 and Phil being 44 and these two youngsters and Spieth and McElroy, that's what makes golf so delicious to me. From the 60s when you had Kerry Hills and you had Palmer and Nicholas and Hogan on the same leaderboard, to have the potential of those cross-generational battles, Spieth versus McElroy versus Nicholson versus Woods, any combination you want, that's when you get people excited about the game. It, it's where you are kind of in that spectrum of golf are you are you in the young is it a young man's game or or do tiger and phil have some fight left that that to me is what makes golf separate from the other sports because you're not gonna have too many 45 year olds being successful in the nfl uh, but you can have that in in the, in the pga tour right you know what's really interesting to me is we've had this conversation together and it's been it's been had so many times about you know what happens to golf when tiger woods isn't there anymore. Not even uh, a factor. Not, not even like he's there, but he's not a factor because that still uh, will draw people at least for, for initially. But what happens if he says, you know, I don't need this anymore. He's obviously made a ton of money, just wants to do something else. What would happen to golf? And I, and yeah, there was um, some hope in, in Rory and thinking, wow, we have this, this next guy, this new generational star. But now we have, the idea of not only having a generational star, but a natural rival who is American too, on top of it, you know, a kid from yeah. Texas. Do you think that that is maybe exactly what we needed for golf to transition into the post tiger era, whenever that may be? I do. I think you couldn't ask for probably a better person to, to, to carry that burden uh, he's got some strong shoulders, some broad shoulders. He's got some mentors in Ben Crenshaw. And, you know, he's picked the brain of Tom Watson and people who have been in that position of being a uh, face of the game. And I tell you what, this, the Tiger Woods phenomenon, to me, is once in a lifetime. Tiger brought so many different people to the game, women and minorities, and, and, and really took it to a place that I'm not sure even Jordan Speed can take it to. But as far as having someone to kind of pique the interest of the American golf fan, I think he could even take the game in the States 
to a place that Rory McIlroy might not be able to, being from right. you know Hollywood, Northern Ireland. I think the fact that he's from Texas, the fact that he went to the University of Texas, and you know has Tony Romo's cell phone on speed dial, and it is kind of picked his mentors in a wise way. People that kind of are part and parcel of the fabric of this great game. Uh, because of his backstory, because of his sister, because of his parents, his brother playing basketball at Brown, he's got a lot of things going for him that I think the sports fan in general will find very positive and very easy to root for. You know what I absolutely love, Damon, was he makes that shot on 18. You know, he wins the tournament. And he's walking off, and it's like, hug with his mom, hug with his dad, hug with his grandpa, hug with his girlfriend, his three best friends from high school. You know, just <laughs> all these people there to support him, like just this really like family atmosphere around this guy. You know, we always loved the, or at least I think a lot of people loved, some people were maybe jealous, but loved the Tiger and Tiger's dad dynamic. You know, Tiger would win a tournament, he'd go, he'd hug his dad. It was this really great bond between father and son. I always loved and admired it. And I think that, I know we've talked a lot about, I think that Tiger sort of, proven to be lost without it to some degree uh, since his father has passed away. Um, here is something similar, but in an almost grander, more traditional fashion of this big family and my best friends and my best friends. You know, sometimes one of the negatives I think with Tiger was that it was almost like he was on such a level that it almost made it impossible for him to have friends like that. And I don't even blame him. You know what I mean? It was just like, I don't know. There was just something different about who Tiger Woods Woods was, and this guy just feels a lot more like a kid I might have went to high school with. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I think Tiger had that kind of Elvis factor. He had this level of popularity uh, and sometimes discomfort with the media. I think Jordan's much more approachable, much more comfortable, and we'll see how it goes. You know, I'm sure back in. 97, and we, we were all saying similar things about Tiger and the hug with his dad and the hug with his mom. And, and But I, I do think you're right. I think his his rocket ship ride was so much faster uh, to stardom that, that you know, it was going to be a long, hard fall. It was going to be a long burden for him to carry. Uh, maybe Jordan Spieth learns from some of those the mistakes that Tiger made, and, and maybe he's able to handle it better. But fame can be difficult, even for the for the strongest of chins, and, and, I, and I hope that this story continues to be a positive one, and I do think that those moments behind the green, they reminded me of 97. The hug with his dad and his mom reminded me of Tiger's moments with, with his late father, uh, Earl, and Nikita as well, so um, it was definitely it was definitely a warm story to, to watch, and one that was very easy to root for, and I, and I hope uh, and think that's going to continue for a long time for Jordan. Yeah, and one of the next and almost last things I was going to ask you was about do we do we worry about the too much too soon thing or are we to an era now anyway where almost everyone is hitting at a younger age than we're accustomed to? Uh, it seems I, I like, think it's the way that the I mean, look at Lydia yeah. Ko, you know, on the LPGA Tour, number one in the world at, at seventeen years of age, and absolutely looking like he belongs there. Jordan Spieth went to college for one year, um, bounced around and, and, you know, got his conditional playing status as the special temporary, you know, PGA Tour membership a couple of years ago, won his first PGA Tour event as a 19-year-old, 
has played in the Ryder Cup and President's Cup team now, and now is the holder of a green jacket. And I tell you what, you, you can only hope that for Lydia Coe and for Jordan Spieth and, and, and the others, because they're, they're, they're not going to be the last, that they have the, the, the love and the centering and the, the people around them and, and the, the, the peace of mind to, to be it. Because it can't be easy to be, you know, a few years removed from high school and to suddenly be on the cover of, of Sports Illustrated and the cover of the New York Times and, and have all this money in your pocket. But I don't think this is going to be the last situation. You just hope that the, that the people around them and, and, the, and their own kind of intuit, intu, intuition and, and knowledge takes them to a good place because it can't be easy. Yes, it's fun to be rich and to be famous, but my goodness, whether it's golf or, or actors um, or basketball players, sometimes it can, be, it can be too much too soon. But I think Jordan has good shoulders. I think Lydia Ko does as well. And I do think there are enough cautionary tales out there uh, for them to learn from and to lean on and maybe take a better path. Uh, all right, last thing, Damon. Uh, we're done with the Masters. we got three majors left. It's like we were talking before, it's just starting to get nice here in Buffalo. It's really starting to feel like golf. You know, there's this really cool thing that can almost only happen in Buffalo. I think it was last weekend. It's this place called Elkettville. It's about, I don't know, 30 miles away from Buffalo. And they have a golf course, a resort, but it's also like the best place to ski uh, south of Lake Placid. People come, wow. you know, from, I don't know, West Virginia up here to, to ski there. Uh, they had the coolest thing on a Saturday where they had one ski slope still open and the front nine of the golf open. And you could pay like $35, play nine holes, and then go down the ski slopes as well. It's a really cool thing. Not the question. I just thought of that. But uh, with uh, the season ahead of us now, the first major out of the way, three to go. Uh, what are the main storylines for this season that you're really interested to follow and uh, see play out? Well, the, the first story is going to be, you know, where does Jordan Spieth go from here? How does he handle fame? What happens in his uh, upcoming starts? He's been so hot, and he's been joking around. People are saying, hey, you know, you're on a great run. And he says, I'm not on a great run. This is who I am. This is the player I'm going to be. So kind of the mentality of a young Tiger Woods expecting to win every time he tees it up. How does he handle that? Uh, Tiger Woods, you know, showing some life when a lot of us thought he was finished. Um, you know, does major number 15 suddenly come and play for him? Uh, Rory McIlroy, you know, he's got the number one ranking, but for how long Jordan Spieth has made no bones about it that he wants that number one ranking. How does Rory react? How does the PJ Tour, uh, you know, journeyman react to seeing how hard he's going to have to work to compete with Jordan Spieth and Roy McIlroy. And then obviously Phil Mickelson, uh, he turns 45 right around the, the, the U S open week as he always does have a, a birthday. Can he complete that one missing spot on the resume, uh, winning the career grand slam at the U S open outside of Seattle at Chambers Bay. And, and I tweeted this a couple of days ago, uh, the state of golf, all of a sudden, you know, we were worried about it. Uh, all of a sudden it feels very strong to me with these storylines, the right. plethora of them, of young Americans, older Americans, uh, a dynamic Northern Irishman, uh, a future Hall of Famer in Tiger, or a present Hall of Famer in Phil, and, and probably a future Hall of Famer in Jordan Spieth. Uh, suddenly the state of, uh, of the PJ Tour and this great game, and that includes also the women in the LPGA, the state feels very strong. Sure does. Uh, listen, you can uh, watch Damon Hack um, on the Golf Channel. He mentioned his Twitter. It's at Damon Hack GC, I believe, correct? Correct. 
anything else you want to let everyone know about where they can uh, find the uh, wonderful uh, words and voice of Damon Hack? Yeah, every now and then I, I write still for golfchannel.com and also, believe it or not, uh, thinking about launching a blog. So that maybe that will be our oh. next conversation. But I've missed writing to the point where I'm looking for different outlets, uh, not just on golfchannel.com, but to share some things about, you know, being a triplet dad and, and being, uh, you know, a former sports writer now, television talking head and some of the things that go with it and also some of my hobbies. So that could be a conversation for a different day. But right now, if you want to find me on the morning drive and, and on uh, Game and Hack GC and, and GolfChannel.com are the best ways to do it. Do you ever think about a book? I've thought about a book as well. And I've even written down some uh, potential pages of, uh, of a potential memoir down the road. Damon, you are the absolute best. Uh, thank you so much for everything you've done for the show every time you've been on. Can't express how much I appreciate it and can't wait to talk to you uh, soon again this summer sometime. It's always a fun conversation, Steve. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, I have to thank Damon Hack for being on the podcast today. I mean, listen, since we started this thing, I mean, Damon Hack is one of the just nicest, most genuine guys uh, that we have dealt with since since uh, starting the podcast and, and meeting and and uh, getting to know so many people in sports media. He's the best. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, it's one of those transition weeks uh, in the book club. We just finished 11th Heaven by Rob Mish last week. I wanted to mention it one more time. Uh, it's Again, it's called 11th Heaven at O'Bannon and the 1995 National Basketball Champion UCLA Bruins. Uh, Rob Mish is the author. M-I-E-C-H is how you spell the last name. He's a great guy. He's passionate about this book. If you listened to the interview on the podcast last week, you'd know that I didn't get really a word in edgewise. I had many uh, questions I wanted to ask him, but... Uh, you know, once I asked him one, it basically brought up three or four stories and uh, kind of a funny thing. He was actually still tweeting me via DM uh, more stories that he, he, he felt bad for not including uh, after the interview. Uh, he's a great guy. It's a good book. He's very passionate about it. It comes out in the book. It's available on Amazon and, you know, all over the place. So uh, check that out for him. All right. Uh, pumped about this. Let's talk NHL playoffs with uh, Mike Halford from NBC Sports Pro Hockey Talk. Our next guest is the lead writer for Pro Hockey Talk and NBC Sports and is making his second appearance on the podcast today. Warren Sportscasters, welcome to uh, Mike Halford. What's going on, Mike? How you doing? Really good. I'm excited for the playoffs. I'm most excited I've ever been for the playoffs uh, without a team in it to root for. Yeah, I am. I'm there with you. I think it's going to be a, a pretty exciting. It's going to be interesting. And I, I look around it and... We've written so much preview stuff already, but uh, 
you know, like there's all these like crazy storylines and everything. And the one thing I keep coming back to is like you've got all these goalies. I think it's six that are making their playoff debut. So you're talking about six guys that have never actually played in the Stanley Cup playoffs before, shouldering all pretty big loads. It's uh, it's pretty unprecedented. It's pretty crazy to watch. You know, I was a pretty big college hockey fan. A brother played for Yale. Uh, just finished his senior year. Um, cover, you know, so I've been following college hockey quite a bit for a while, and it, at Yale they have a, had this amazing goalie this year. Who I mean, you know, nine forty save percentage and like a one point four four goals against, and I don't know seven or eight shutouts. You know, off the charts numbers, all records at Yale, and you know, then there's like, well, this guy at St. Lawrence, and then there's this guy at North Dakota, and it's like there's like like eight or nine goalies. It seems like at this level, and I, I, don't, it just seems like, um, and then in Buffalo, like it's a weird thing too with goalies, where you know we had this guy who was behind Ryan Miller for a long time, and he gets a chance to start, and he's playing so well that they need to trade him uh, because that's just not in the plans. And then a, a new guy comes in and he's doing so well that they need to trade him because he's not in the plans. And then when you think about goalies, it's like, well, there's going to be one that's going to be able to, uh, to be good enough one way or another. Are we entering this age where there's just a lot of like goalies who, who are like the, I don't know exactly how to put this. I don't want to say we're in a golden age of goalies. Cause I don't know if that's true, but, are we entering this period where certainly the bar is, is very, I don't know if it's low or high. I, do you know what I'm trying to say here? So I'm having yeah, trouble I think, closing I think it there's, out, there's, but, there's, a, there's a surplus of quality goalies. Sure there. feels there's, that there's, way. There's too, yeah. there's too many goalies and there's not enough jobs at the NHL level. I mean, you know, it's funny to watch because I think last year especially you saw in free agency where it was like, you mentioned Ryan Miller. Well, Ryan Miller who is a Vezna winner and was outstanding for the U.S. Olympic team on the international stage, really didn't have a lot of suitors last year. I mean, he had a handful. He had a couple, and he, he found a pretty good situation in Vancouver, but other guys didn't. It was, you know, there was guys like Jonas Hiller, who, you know, he t- took a reasonably modest deal to battle for a number one job in Calgary, and he had come off being, you know, a, a very high-volume starter for the Ducks for a long time. I mean, go into this season, Antti Niemi's probably going to leave the San Jose Sharks, and it's like, where's his landing spot? Like, where's an NHL team that's going to need a guy like that? Because, as you said, there's a lot of goalies coming up from the collegiate ranks. I mean, everyone's clamoring over Matt O'Connor from Boston University. I mean, there's apparently no shortage of teams that are interested in getting him in the door. There's going to be other guys. There's going to be guys from Europe. There's always guys that emerge at the World Championships that either end up playing, usually for Finland or Sweden. Uh, they usually end up, you know, busting onto the scene. There's guys just come out of the woodwork. It's just what happens. And I think what it is is the the, the coaching has gotten better at a variety of different levels in a variety of different places. So you've got to think, like, you know, in the NHL, there's really only 60 jobs during the regular season. Most teams only carry two goalies. So there's only a handful of jobs available. And you've got a lot of qualified guys, which is why, you know, in the case of Buffalo this year, they were able to run through, I mean, they went through Neuvert, and then they went through Enroth, and then they went through Lindback, and they brought in Chad Johnson. I mean, you can do that to a certain degree because there's that kind of talent level out there. Yeah, I mean, by any measure, Carey Price has had an unbelievable season at Montreal, right? Like, we've been talking all year, Carey Price could win the MVP. He's had an unbelievable season. Uh, but statistically, he doesn't have the gap on, say, the 10th best goalie that maybe when uh, Dominic Hasek had an MVP-type season that he had on the 10th. Best goalie. 
Yeah, it's almost like the top end of goaltending is really slight right now. Like, I think you would probably say if you had Carey Price or Pekka Rene, you have an elite-level goalie, and then you're looking at it, and it's like, I mean, look at the Vezina this year. That's going to, you know, be awarded. They'll be the three finalists to be the best goal in the NHL. Everyone assumes it's going to be Price is going to win, and then Rene will be the runner-up, and then everyone kind of makes their arguments for the third guy. It's like, is it Devin Dubnik in Minnesota? You know, is it Brayden Holtby in Washington? Is it Corey Schneider in New Jersey? I mean, there's lots of guys that could fill that third spot, but you kind of established a second tier at that point. It's like, well, you've got Price, you've got Rene. You know, I think, you know, Lundquist is probably in that upper tier as well because he's been so good for so long. But it is certainly an interesting time for goalies because, like I said, there's there's a very few in that elite category, and there's a lot in the awfully good category. Right, and I, I don't know if it was the first time that Chicago won their cup or if it was the second one. I want to say it was the second one, but I remember thinking, like, man, they really need to trade for a goalie, and then they didn't need to trade for a goalie. They won anyway, and I remember thinking, man, you're never going to get value for a goalie ever again because it's just, I, I don't know. It, I'm not saying it's not as valuable. It just seems... Like I mean, yeah, you can, no, you're on the right path. Cause, I mean, you can do it with a you know, sort of cheaper guy. I mean, the trend actually is these guys win Stanley Cups and then they get paid. I mean, that's what Corey Crawford did after he won his. Right. That's what Jonathan Quick did after he got his. That's what, uh, you know, Tuka Rask went to the 2013 Stanley Cup final, didn't even win the Stanley Cup, and he got paid after that. That's sort of the trend is, you know, you get these guys and you get them in on relatively cheap deals, and then they prove that they're the quote-unquote, you know, guy that can carry the water and they get paid. But... I think what you're seeing now is a lot of teams saying, maybe we don't go that route. Maybe we don't sink a ton of money into these guys after they make their run because we can find another one. I mean, look, Chicago won Stanley Cups with Anthony Amy and Corey Crawford. And th- that was at the beginning of their sort of developments where it was like no one really knew what Anthony Amy was as a goalie. No one certainly thought he was a Stanley Cup winning goalie until he won one. And the same questions were out on Crawford before he won Crawford, one as well. Right. Yeah, I think the negative, if you look at it the other way, is we got so many goalies putting up great numbers, and then we have you know one guy in the league who scored fifty goals and an Art Ross Trophy at eighty-seven points, which seems excruciatingly low. It's low. It's not high. <laughs> I'll tell yeah. you that. I mean, only having the one fifty goals, it's tough, right? Because I mean, the, the counter to that is like you've got realistically now more lines throughout the NHL that can score. I mean, I was looking at Washington today, today, for example, doing a player preview for them, and it was like, well, you've got Ovechkin, and he scored the 50-plus, and you know he was an elite-level scorer. But Washington had 10 different guys that scored 10 goals this year, and they had 17 different guys that had at least 17 points. I mean, that is some really balanced scoring. And it's not like the days of, I mean, obviously you can go back to the Gretzky era where it was like your top-line guys did all the scoring, and then the fourth-line guys went out there and hit people and beat people up. Now it's like, you know, good quality teams play their fourth line 12 to 13 minutes a night, and those guys can get like 8 to 10 goals and 15 to 20 points. And that's on the low end. I mean, here in Vancouver, the fourth line, you know, often can get up to 13 or 14 minutes a night. And there's a couple guys in there that are like 10, 15-goal scorers. So the dynamics have changed where it's like you don't have the elite guys anymore. Um, you know, because, I mean, really, really, you know, the individual scoring is down. Scoring is down a bit, but it's not this dramatic fall off a cliff that you would think. I just, I honestly believe that part of it is because it is really spread out, and you just don't get the dominant individual performances anymore. It's, it's, I mean, everyone preaches about it being a team game, and everyone uses that sort of 
cliche that it's, you know, you roll your four lines and everyone contributes. But the reason it's a cliche is because it's kind of true, and I think it is in this instance. Yeah, and that's a really good point, too, because you think about Ovechkin, who had the 53 goals and, and finished with 81 assists, and that doesn't seem like a lot of assists. But then I was looking into it at one point. It, it was, there was still maybe 10 games left, and he was like fourth in primary assists. You know, yeah. At the time. And it was like, wow, you know, like, you know, th- that just to me shows that because they're not a, a particularly, you know, they're not the lowest scoring team in the league or anything either. So I was like, wow, all right. Yeah, balance. That makes sense. You know, balance makes sense. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be one of those things because it's, it's, it's eye popping when you look at the scoring lead and a guy has 87 points on top of it. It's, it's a thing where it's like people are used to the certain traditions in hockey where it's like, the R. Ross guy is a guaranteed triple-digit scorer, and maybe even higher. And the Rocket Richard guy, you know, this year Ovechkin kind of saved that race, to be perfectly honest. Right. Getting the getting the fifty-three, because otherwise you're looking at it, and it's like there's, you know, there's only other, there's only two forty-goal scorers aside from him, Stamkos and Nash, right? Right. So, Sagan missed I mean, a lot and of time. It used to, and it used to be, and it wasn't that long ago where Stamkos had sixty goals in a season. You maybe have a couple fifty-goal scores. To only have one guy hit fifty, to only have two guys hit forty, it's kind of a thing where you're like, whoa, what's happened here? But I, I honestly, I go back to it. I think it's balanced. I think it's more guys doing more scoring as opposed to the upper elite guys doing the majority of it. Yeah, and you know, I was talking to you before we started about how much I was looking forward to the playoffs just because, you know, obviously the level of hockey that's been played in this area for two years now um, is, you know, it's the worst two-year stretch ever. I mean, even the first two years (laughs) of the, you know, I wasn't alive in 1970, but, you know, my dad was, and I was asking him about it, and he's like, no, I can't even remember being that bad because at least we had Perot, you know? So, um, but I'm looking forward to uh, going into the playoffs. And one thing I'm not thinking uh, consciously or subconsciously is, oh man, there's just not going to be enough goals scored. I don't have that perception about it. Like, I feel like, like looking at the matchups, I picked out my, you know, three or four. It's like, I want to see every game in this series. Like, I am really excited to see Chicago and Nashville. Can't wait to see. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you on that. Canada. I think I think the NHL got some some good good matches considering the markets that didn't hit this year. Like I think they would always love to see Boston in. They'd always love to see Philly in. I think LA missing is probably a hit. But at the same time, the matchups, you know, it's going to create good hockey. Like the the Islanders Cap series. I know a ton of people that are really excited for that. I mean, that's got a lot of history to it. You go back to 93 yep. with the, the Dale Hunter hit and everything. And I mean, you look at some of the, like, I mean, Anaheim and Winnipeg, like I, it was funny. We were shooting some uh, promo video stuff the other day for NBC. And I was saying like, you know, this has the potential to just be a big bruise this entire series. Like there, it's just these, these two massive teams that are going to be running up against one another. You know, it could be like that Chicago St. Louis series last year that was like a total bloodbath. Or you go back two years ago when the Blues played the Kings, and it was like an absolute meat grinder. Like, I, you have that potential there because Winnipeg's so physical. And, I mean, you know, Ottawa Montreal to me is a really compelling series just because of the goaltending there where you've got, you know, Carey Price, who's probably going to win the MVP in one net. Then you've got Andrew Hammond, who, like, was never a quality goalie at any stage of his hockey career, like, not in college, not in the AHL. And then he gets to the NHL and he goes on this remarkable run. So, I mean, these stories are all across the border. I didn't even touch on the, the Pittsburgh-New York Rangers series, which is like a rematch of last year, and you've got you know, Crosby on Broadway and all that stuff. So they, they, the, the matchups held up pretty well. 
Yeah. They generally tend to in the first round of the, of the playoffs, to be honest. We always find at PHC, like, the first round is the best because there's stuff happening nonstop. Every series becomes, like, eight or ten really compelling storylines, and you're just basically trying to keep up with everything. So I'm always, you know, I, I think the matchups are great. I'm always looking forward to it, and this is, like, no different. Now, with that said, and obviously you mentioned Pittsburgh, New York, which is like an NBC network wet dream or whatever. Um, with that said, though, is there really such a clamoring in offices to fill out brackets and such a uh, an increase in rivalry or something that we need to have this ridiculous situation where we're not just the one seed isn't playing the eight and the two isn't playing the seven? Like, is this really working? Is this really? Well, I, it's only been the, it's only the second year of it. I mean, I love these people that are like, "Oh, we need we need to get we need to switch this up." I'm like, they just realigned everything, and they, I mean, the, the, the NHL's biggest problem is that they've changed us quite a bit since the last season of like oh four oh five. Is I remember when we first came out of the lockout, you had the Allen schedule where you were playing teams in your division like eight times, and that messed up the standings because if you were in a bad division, you'd have like a twenty point gap on someone, and then the standings would really be out of whack. I mean. I get what they're trying to do with the rivalry thing. I understand that they felt like they went too far astray from what they had back in in the the quote unquote glory days with the Norris and the Smythe, and you know I get that that they want those. And honestly, you know they they look at football a lot of the times, and you know you see that kind of stuff. Right? You see the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Baltimore Ravens. You see those interdivisional rivalries. You know, and and you want to replicate that. You want to have that ingrained in those fan bases because a lot of it a lot of it existed already right i mean st louis and chicago don't like each other and they, they you know that it kind of got muddled there for a while because you had all this weird realignment and everything you know and then and then you lost some of it naturally because you had to move detroit to the east after all these years so you lose their inherent rivalries with st louis with the chicago so it's it's still new it's still in its infancy i mean I think what they're trying to do is the right thing. It's going to take some time before it sinks in. It's going to wreak havoc on the standings. That's the big problem, and you brought it up. And you can't really get around it because, you know, traditionally it should be 1v8, 1 plays 8, 2 plays 7. Um, the only thing I'll say to that is that it, <clears throat> it's not like you're going to get any sort of, you know, mismatch in the opening round anyway because the way the NHL is is the first seed in the West is not that much different from the eighth seed in the West, no matter how you shake them up. I mean, if you were to do this in a sort of conventional way, I don't know. I mean, look at the West right now. If you were to take, let's say, what would it be? It would be, be Anaheim in first, right? And it would be Calgary in eighth. Right. You know, you'd probably have Anaheim as the favorite in that series, but no one's calling it a cakewalk, right? No one's saying that, you know, that's going to be a blowout or that Calgary has no business being in the playoffs. I mean, they, they've, they've played tough the entire year. If you go 2-7, you're going to go St. Louis and Winnipeg. Yeah, I think. The, I mean, I don't consider that to be a major over, you know, major favorite and underdog scenario either. So, I. It, it, but again, I do get it in the traditional sense that it should be you finish first in your conference, you finish with 109 points like Anaheim. You should theoretically have the lowest seed in the playoffs and have a decided advantage like that. Yeah, I mean, we do have an 82 game season. You know what I mean? And and you mentioned Pittsburgh and Baltimore. Those teams play in the playoffs every time one of them is the appropriate seed to match the appropriate seed. They don't force it. And, you know, I can't believe that the powers would be went into a room. They thought, okay, let's make the odds harder to make the playoffs in the East than the West. And then let's have a situation where St. Louis and Nashville could win their round ones. 
and then we could have upsets in and have Winnipeg and Calgary win and you know St. Louis to get to the conference finals might have to play you know Minnesota and Nashville and then meet a team like let's just say Calgary who's played Winnipeg and Vancouver that's you know and they were the eighth seed uh, yeah, don't, crazy. Hey, don't get me wrong. There's, there's very much an aspect of, you know, punch your dance ticket and then see what happens to it. And right. I think that's the big thing is, I, you know, I, the seeding stuff, aside from getting home ice advantage through the playoffs, like who you meet is who you meet. Sergio. If, you're in a, if you're in a tough division, you're in a tough division, right? I mean, the Central is, is a meat grinder. That's yeah. tough to get through. And that's cyclical. You know? so that's cyclical. It's, it's all, yeah, it's almost like Winnipeg it, it has a benefit of getting in the wild card. Because like you said, if Winnipeg sneaks through and you know gets over Anaheim in the first round, suddenly they're looking at it. It's like, wow, we have the winner of Calgary, Vancouver in the second round. Like We could be in a Western Conference final. We could be one series away from the Stanley Cup final. I mean, that kind of stuff will happen. And I think, you know, if you want to kind of like, you know, sort of repurpose your your perceptions of this, it's like, well, you know, get into the playoffs. Just get in. Survive the 82-game season, get in, and then see what happens. Because that's kind of what it's been the last few years anyway. I mean, when L.A. won its first Stanley Cup, I mean, they got in as, as the eighth seed and like with a week left in the regular season. Right. Get in and then see what happens. And, you know, that's kind of how the NHL works. Yeah, and Edmonton made it in in 2006 as an eight. They didn't win, but they made it in. I think they forced a the game seven too. Yep. Yeah. They went on, and and they played Carolina in the yeah. final, who was who was the the best seed in the East, right? right. I mean, it's, it's, the... it's, 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 that's what it is. It's, it's get it's punch your dance, take it, get in, and see what happens. Yeah, and I mean, not to be you know bitter berry or whatever, but that Carolina team had the huge, um, huge advantage of every time they lost a conference final game, Sabres lost to defenseman. Which worked out really well for them, and then they got to the yeah, final. Yeah, no, I, I do remember that. Yeah, you know, it's funny if you go back and look at that season. It was just like it was such a bizarre year because uh, they came out of the they came out of the lockout calling a billion penalties. Like teams were getting right. like nine or ten yep. power plays a game, mm-hmm. and Carolina like dined out on that. And then they went out. I, I the one thing I really remember is that is at a certain point of the season. I almost feel like Rutherford knew that this it was totally up for grabs because the hockey was so different than anyone was used to seeing that he was like, let's just go for it. So they got Doug Waite and they got Mark Recchi way early, like before the deadline. And that just like catapulted them into the next level. And they, they yeah, they got like offensively, they were pretty lethal that year. And then, of course, you know, they, they, they kind of caught lightning in a bottle with Cam Ward. Not some others. I mean, Cam Ward that year, right? I mean, you know. Cam Ward's career has never reached those heights before, and probably won't again, to be honest. And but they pulled it was, him. It was such a bizarre year, and it just happened almost. And yeah, Carolina's got a Stanley Cup. Yeah, and they pulled him one time in the conference finals, and one time before that, and played another guy, which is really rare for a Cup winner, even for a Conn Smythe winner. I think Cam Ward won the Conn Smythe. If I'm not incorrect. Uh, that year. No, he did. Yeah, yeah he did. Yeah, he wasn't even... the starting goalie going into the playoffs. I mean, yeah. it was like they were they were, they were down, down that year to Montreal, Montreal and they put yeah. him in, and, and everything just changed. He was yeah. twenty years old at the time. Yeah, Eric Stahl, I think, scored the big overtime winner in Game Three uh, in Montreal. Um, but obviously, ancient history you could probably talk about something. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that that's a frustrating one for someone in Buffalo, though, because you, you know, Jay, if Jay McKee doesn't wake up the day day of Game Seven with a staff infection. From a cut he injured against Ottawa like a month ago, uh, you know, they we probably have a banner. I don't know. 
But yeah. Well, no, okay. Uh, Jay, I know we want to be pessimists. Here's like those, those two years in Buffalo, 0506 and 0607, there should have been at least one Stanley Cup finalist out of those two teams. Right. The way that they played and the guys that they had and the times that they had those guys, really a lot of those guys in the peak of their careers, like they, there should have been a Cup final out of those two teams. And, and the way that they scored, too. I mean, just like the offense was so dynamic. It, it was a disappointment to not see one of those teams get to the Cup final. And then obviously, you know, a big reason why – Everyone has been so pro-tank, quote-unquote, I guess here, is because there's a mindset that if we could ever build a team like that again, we'll never have another July 1st, 2007, where Dreer and, and or, <laughs> I combine their names because we do that with uh, Eichel. <laughs> we do that with Eichel and uh, McDavid. We called them McEichel, so I just uh, did that maybe subconsciously with uh, career and jury but both of those guys leaving on the same day that's never going to happen with terry pagula as the owner so it's just like wow if we can get two players good enough that they would even want you know someone would want to pay them a seven year 70 million dollar contract that's not going to happen to us again but um, no yeah i mean you know that you learn from your mistakes like no one would ever let guys walk to free agency like that again i mean it's like the way that the current landscape in the nhl is if you get the inkling that the guy's not going to resign with you you trade him or you do something and you would never get this massive counter off, it, it, it just it, that, that those days are kind of long gone. I mean, it could still happen, but I mean, look at look at free agency in the last few years. I mean, there's no guys that really ever get to free agency. Yeah, we They're know game changers. <laughs> yeah, right? we, it's always second tier kind of guys now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you look at the, uh, you know, I, I, if I if I talked to you and I said, hey, you know, I really think the Rangers and the uh, and the Blues have a good shot at being in the Cup, you would say, yeah, probably. But that wouldn't get anyone very far. Are there some teams you're looking at that are a little under the radar as far as a cup team that you are kind of into getting behind a little bit? Uh, Winnipeg in the the West. I like Winnipeg a lot. I've seen them play a lot because they've come through Vancouver. Best home field advantage too, right? In the whole playoffs, you got to think. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, like the energy in that rink is going to be like unparalleled. No one's going to be able to match how loud and how crazy it is. But like, here's the thing: is they they play a style that is so well-suited for the playoffs because they take the body, like, relentlessly. They're relentless. I mean, up front, they, you know, it's funny because Paul Marie says we've got all these guys like Andrew Ladd and Blake Wheeler, all these big, strong guys that are fast and can skate. And he he says one of our best four-checkers is Matthew Perot, who's like a little guy who isn't that physical, but he's tenacious along with the rest of them. And then on defense, I mean, you know, you, you have to... You know, imposing physical specimens in Tyler Myers and Dustin Bufflin, who, in addition to being able to, you know, really work guys over and make them pay over the course of the seven-game series, they log huge minutes. I mean, you can bump those guys to 24, 25 a night, and they're going to be able to handle it. I mean, I think, I, I think if they can get out of that first round against Anaheim, which make no mistake is going to be tough, I think they've got they've got a real opportunity. And again, like I said earlier, because they would theoretically play the winner of Vancouver and Calgary. Um, out east. I mean, oh, hold, I would, hold on, hold on. I, I would. Yep. I got. I got. <laughs> we got to back up for one second, though, because you called Tyler Myers. What'd you call him? An imposing something. Physical. Uh, imposing. Yeah. If you watch him play, and uh, they've convinced in, in Winnipeg, him. It's remarkable. It's a completely different guy. Okay. So he's a completely different guy. Uh, good for them then, because I'll tell yeah, you what. I, yeah. He's not. He is not the same guy that he was in Buffalo. I don't know what happened. He is not the same guy that he was in Buffalo. He's playing with an edge. It's, I, you know, I honestly think it's because it's he, he, where he's in, it, at in Winnipeg. It's like Maurice has got a really good understanding of 
you know, he fires his guys up and he lets them play. They take, like, they take a lot of penalties, right? I mean, they're one of the most penalized teams in the NHL. They, they border on being undisciplined, but the entire team plays that way. And Myers plays that way now. Like, yeah, he's, he's got a bit of a nasty streak in him. He is not the guy that was in Buffalo. And, I mean, you, you know, I mean, they moved him when they did, which I, which I applaud because it was the smart move to make. They, they, they probably could have moved him earlier and shaved a year of terribleness off him because, I mean, he was obviously a shell of himself right. at a certain stage in Buffalo. It was just he had no confidence, and, you know, he, they couldn't find him the right partner to play with, and they were losing all the time. And it, it just wasn't a good fit. This is a much better fit for him. At the same time, I think, like, the same thing, I think, Bogosian's going to be better in Buffalo than Tyler Myers ever was going to be, if that makes any sense. No, you totally. That's how that's going to work out. When Tyler Myers won the, the Rookie of the Year, I said, you know, he's the first Sabre in a long time who has the upside to have a career where at the end of it we say he's the best Sabre ever. You know, the problem was in Buffalo that he always played like a six foot seven boy. You know, he never played like a six foot seven man here. But that, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, he was never going. Like, he's never yeah. going to be Chara, right? He's never and, and we knew play that style, and that's what everyone wanted him to do when they right. saw him. And we knew that, and, and naturally, because they're the same size and they got a lot of the same attributes, right? And we knew that we might be the, uh, you know, the team that traded Chara in five years. But you know, like Chara, I just don't think it was going to happen for him here. So I'm glad for, I'm glad he's he's. I'm glad he's doing well enough that anyone would consider calling him a imposing physical presence because he was never anything, even in his best year, uh, and he probably only really had one good one, maybe one and a half. Uh, never close to that, but he was also yeah, yeah no, I, honestly, very he is a time. different he is a different guy in Winnipeg, and I think a lot of it's got to do with being in Winnipeg. So who do you like in the East? Uh, you know, uh, in that you know, I, I I like Washington quite uh, a bit to be honest. Um, I. <laughs> I like Barry Trotz. He's again. I, I keep referencing the fact that I live on the West Coast, but we saw Nashville a lot when he coached those teams, and they came. They came into pretty much every playoff series as the underdog. Like very rarely was someone like, "Ooh, we like Nashville this year." I mean, they were a very lunch bucket team, but they're very disciplined. They, they, they they're very structured. Like they play within a structure. They just never had any of the kind of offensive talent that Trotz has in Washington right now. And I mean. Look, if, it's one of those things where it's like if they can build a little bit of momentum, if they can get out of the first round against the Islanders, I mean, they know that this is their time right now. They're a 101-point team. They had a really good regular season. I watched them at the Winter Classic, and, I mean, Trotz has that team's ear. I was, I was there in, in Washington. He knows how to fire those guys up, I, and, he, and he does it in a way that I don't think Adam Oates ever did or knew how. Uh, Dale Hunter really, he was not a, a fire him up kind of guy. It was, you know, he was a much more, he, he played to, to the grinders and to the guys that were going to win the battles and stuff. And I think Boudreaux, you know, after a while, the his version of firing people up in the raw raw stuff, it just, it just died. And they've got it, they've got a lot of pieces going for them right now. Uh, you know, I, I like their team toughness, to be honest. I mean, I, I like that they've got some toughness on defense with guys like Warpik and Gleason, who aren't the greatest skaters and are probably going to get exposed at times, but they're tough. They've got some good, tough guys up front. Like, uh, you know, I think Tom Wilson, if he's healthy, he could be a guy that you're really going to notice in the playoffs because he runs around and he hits people, and that's what you need to do. And, you know, they, they want to be a tough team, and they want to be a team that scores, and I think they've really got a good makeup. I mean, I, honestly, you know, they, they kind of got some of the traits that I like out of Winnipeg, and that's kind of why I think both could get through as a sleeper. Yeah, interesting. Orpik is probably my least favorite Buffalo hockey player ever. 
Um, yeah, I mean, like, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to try and sell Warpick because he's obviously got some major deficiencies in his game. And like, if you if you, if you are into advanced metrics and Corsi and Fenwick and possession stats, like, mm, you don't like Warpick yeah. one bit, right? But I mean, there is something to be said for a guy that can go out and and win a lot of physical battles and be tough and do that kind of stuff. And I mean, you know, they they, they grossly overpaid to get him. And I'm sure it'll cost him at some point. But for this year, you know, you're you're doing pretty well, Washington, and he's he's played a pretty significant role, and he's up to like 21 and a half minutes a night. So, you know, I I, I like how it bodes for the playoffs. When Orpic and Stepniak were like coming up in Buffalo, you know, I think Orpic is a little older, and they had this uh-huh. thing at Niagara, and uh, um, Stepniak made Orpic look horrible. And and, <laughs> yeah. and scores the goal right, and Orpic, who was the be- was supposed to be the big guy at this you know showcase, was I think a little embarrassed, and he turned around, he gave Stepniak this like giant two hander, and got in Stepniak's face a little bit, and I was asking Stepniak after, I'm like, what were you saying? He's like, oh, you know, just uh, I'm not gonna be shit, I'm not good enough for major junior, I'm going to college, <laughs> college is stupid, you know, whatever, so. Yeah, it's interesting because you mentioned Winnipeg too. Who you know, Stepniak's one of my all-time favorite Buffalo uh, hockey players. Uh, my favorite's got to be Kane. It's everyone's favorite, and he's coming back, uh, cleared for contact, going to be uh, ready. Do you think Chicago's maybe sliding under the radar a little bit here as we enter the playoffs? Well, not now. <laughs> right, <laughs> I mean, well, everyone, yeah. their dog was hanging around, training, and you know, just keeping their eye on Kane Stall and talking to team doctors and talking to Quenville. I mean, this is all anyone was waiting for, really, and. I mean, it's going. I mean, it's a nightmare situation for Nashville. To be honest, mm-hmm. I can't think of a worse scenario. I mean, they they basically skidded down the stretch. I think they only had eight wins in their last twenty-five. Rene hasn't been playing that well. And then at some point, I thought they might be okay because in Chicago totally backed their way into the playoffs too. I mean, Chicago wasn't good in the last ten or fifteen games of the regular season either. But if it, it, it's a it's a terrible situation for Nashville because. You know, it's almost like Chicago needed something to give them a spark, and now they've got it. Like, Kane's going to come back, and the United Center, obviously the roof's going to blow off when he he steps back out. I mean, it's going to be this huge emotional lift, not discounting the fact that the guy has this, like, library of clutch goals that he scored in the playoff and all all the stuff that he's done in these clutch moments. I mean, a supremely talented player coming back to give this team his way. I just think it's going to be... I'm not going to say massacre, but like I got a feeling that Chicago is really going to overwhelm Nashville in the early parts of this series. Like I'm not surprised if this thing goes back. You know, or, or, sorry if this is like a five or a six game series where where Chicago just kind of really takes takes control. We had Pete Weber on a while ago, and I was asking him like, "This is when Nashville is number one in the conference, going really well." And I was like, "Who do you, who is a bad matchup for for Nashville in the playoffs? Who's a good one?" And you know the first team out of his mouth for bad matchups was Chicago. So yeah, it, it, yeah, yeah, he's right. It's a bad matchup. Yeah, I mean, okay. I would say, Nashville's got a, they do have home ice advantage, and for like the first two thirds of the season, they literally couldn't lose at Bridgestone Arena. Like they were they were on fire at home. They have again, and nothing's gone well for them after the All Star break. They just haven't been very good, uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they kind of came back to earth. But you know, there are other teams that they would have liked to have seen than Chicago, because right. the, other, the other big X factor here is that you could not have uh, a team with more playoff experience than Chicago up against a team with less playoff experience than Nashville. Like, they, don't, they don't have it. There's not a lot of guys there that have been through the quote-unquote wars and everything. And, I mean, you, look at, you go down the middle now, and it's like, you know, this is where you start to see that 
maybe you're going to have some problems if your top two centers are Mike Ribeiro and Mike Fisher, and Fisher's dinged up right now too. And maybe this is where you start to see that you're going to have problems scoring goals when you rely so heavily on Philip Forsberg because he's going to see an awful lot of Seabrook and Keith, and that's a big task for a young kid going into his first playoffs. So it's not a good matchup for them. Uh, I like Chicago a lot there, and the Kane thing just kind of puts it over the top. I always uh, root for Chicago as I love Kaner, but it's an extra boost now that JT was the MVP of the tank. I got to, uh, you know, Jonathan, (laughs) his heroics here in Buffalo a couple weeks ago. I mean, just can't say enough about what that will mean to this city. I I made a joke, too, about how we were all so thrilled that this dominant third overall pick came in and saved us from the nightmare that would have been drafting third overall. Um, Because you know that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, could you imagine? Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I I, I get what you're saying. Like, the the tank thing to me is, it's funny, right? It's like, like I I understand that, you know, you kind of have to drop everything, and you've got to go for that. You've got to make your focus getting that first overall pick. If you don't, you're nuts. I mean, it's like, it's very rarely do you get, like, this surefire he's going to be a generational-type talent like McDavid. And, I mean, if you look at the scouting stuff now, it's like McDavid's even distanced himself from Eichel. And I like Eichel a lot. I mean, you know, if you want to draw all those Paul Korea comparisons based on the fact that, you know, they both won the Hobie when they were freshmen and they both took their teams to the title game and they're both going to be, you know, really high-end picks. I think Korea went fourth overall. I mean, if, Paul so Korea, if, if Paul Korea doesn't get hurt, Paul Korea is a Hall of Famer. I mean, there's no question. Right. I mean, he was a he, he was he, he finished runner up for the heart when he was like 23. I mean, he was that that talented and that dynamic when he was playing. So that's Eichel. That's a good case scenario for Eichel, and they're already saying that McDavid is that that step ahead. Like, there's no question that McDavid won't go first overall. So, I mean, you know, you, you talked about like you know the you know how bad it would have been to draft third. Yeah, I kind of get why it would have been because right. you know you you go through all this suffering for two years to miss out on someone that good. It really would have been like a huge stomach punch. Well, and it was being so bad last year, one year before these two guys. Like, of course, we came to the party one year early, but you know, I've been talking to people all year you know bob mckenzie was on talked to him um talked to uh ken reed uh from sports not uh merrick and it's interesting that i don't the final the frozen four was on tsn this year i know it's been on tsn two for a few years but i guess there's just nothing that can happen for people in canada to really understand how good nca hockey is i mean you want to make a comparison to korea nca hockey when Korea was in it, probably had ten percent of the NHL. It's close to forty. It's close to forty now. You know, it's close to forty now. And Eichel every night is out there uh, playing against people as old as twenty-four. You know, years old. Connor McDavid is playing against a league in a league whose average birth age is what seventeen. Yeah, I mean, Connor McDavid I mean, he, he, should be scoring at the rate he is. I mean, Jack Eichel would have dominated the Q to a level since no one since Crosby, I'm sure, has um, if he played in it. But he didn't need to, and he's better for not. And I feel bad that there's just this kind of, in my opinion, uh, outdated perception of what it means to play college hockey and what it means specifically when you're comparing Connor McDavid and Jack Eichel. Yeah, but I mean, you get why why scouts like kids coming out of, especially the Ontario hockey. Not anymore, right? no, because the advantage was always that 
you could play like Connor McDavid when he was 15 getting the exemptional status immediately got to play at that high of a level at 15. doesn't matter anymore now with the development program because someone like Eichel has been playing in the USHL since he was 16. It's not like a guy like Eichel was stuck playing on some high school team uh, somewhere yeah. until he could mercifully get... But, but that wasn't really my point. My point is that they like having kids coming out of there because it's as, it's as close to a professional environment that they can get because the guys do the travel and they do the media and, you know, they, t- they take the trips, they go on the roadies. You know, they, it's, it's a different environment in that regard. So when you're talking about looking at 18-year-old kids, you want to try. It, it's very hard to project how they're going to be in three or four years, which is partly why the NCAA has got an advantage, because when guys are 22 and 23 and graduating, why do you think you see all these NHL teams lined up to grab these guys? Because they've had a longer look to see them and how they mature, right? When you're taking a gamble on a kid that's 18, you want them in an environment that's as close to a professional setting as imaginable. So that OHL season, which runs like 60 games, and then when you get into the playoffs in the Mem Cup, you're playing close to 80 games. It, it does mimic an NHL you know, campaign. And the way that the coaching works is you see a lot of guys that graduate from the O and then they go in to the AHL and the NHL. So they're geared a little bit more that way. That's why the scouts really like it. I get, that being said, don't get me wrong, I, you know, the, the, the growth that collegiate hockey's made in the last little while is really impressive. And you're seeing that. I mean, the numbers are there. That's the big thing. If you look at the number of NHL players now that have played collegiate hockey, yeah, it's close it to forty percent of the league, and up and up, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's no denying that it's a very good circuit of anything. All I, and I'm not even I'm not really going to debate either one because I see the merits of both. I'm just saying is that's one of the things that a lot of people don't take into consideration is scouts and front office people. They do like the fact that when these kids play in the OHL, that it's as close to a professional environment as they can get, and they like seeing how kids react to that. Well, I mean, I have no problem with Connor McDavid being considered better than Jack Eichel because he probably is. I just have a problem with people saying, but we never really got to really know because Eichel didn't play in the QHL or whatever the league is called. I don't even know. Because um, it wouldn't have been the OHL, obviously, with him being from yeah, Boston. QMJHL, right, yeah, QMJHL. I, go... I think his rights were at St. John's. I think, yeah, he would have had to go to the though. QHL. I mean, he played 60 games this year. Um, you know, He played in a Frozen Four in front of 20,000 people you know, at the Boston Gardens. I mean, I, I don't know what he didn't get that he could have got. He went on plenty of road trips, you know, uh, plenty of bussers back and forth. Um, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't get it. Uh, I totally understand why a 16-year-old Canadian kid would go to the OHL. I have no idea why a 16-year-old United States kid could. I think every advantage it, that it had doesn't exist anymore. The USHL has grown just as much as NCAA hockey has. It's an unbelievable league. Uh, and that is very much a simulation of NHL hockey more than college yeah, hockey. Yeah, and, and I think you're starting to see a lot more, too. I mean, that's probably a big reason why a guy like Eichel, who probably, yeah, like you said, could have reaped all these, these quote-unquote benefits from going to play in Canada. He stuck it out and decided to stay at BU, and he's going to be the number two overall pick in the draft. So it's not like it turned out badly for him. Right, and he's not the first one. I mean, you know, uh, Jaden... Jaden Schwartz uh, went this route. Uh, Jonathan Taze, yeah. who we talked about. But um, yeah. All right. I just want to ask you two more quick little things. One is I always talk about I admire Carey Price because I think goalie for Montreal has got to be the biggest pressure position maybe in all of sports. So I admire how he's handled it since a very young age and, and to this point now. Uh, besides Carey Price, who's a guy you think there's a lot of pressure on uh, specifically, I know you wrote about coaches today, but player-wise, uh, who do you see as someone who has a lot of pressure to uh, be his best uh, this spring? 
that's a good one, actually. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I've been focusing so much on the goalies lately. I don't really want to say Crosby. You know, actually, you know, one guy that I, I, I do think has got a lot of pressure on him is Tavares, actually. I, you know, I, I, I think that there's this feeling that, you know, as he goes, so go the Islanders. He, he had a good year. I mean, don't get, I mean, he was right there for the Art Ross the entire time. But, you know, you we're getting to that stage of his career where, you know, he, he doesn't have any playoff wins. He's only got one playoff appearance. He missed last year, obviously, because of the knee injury and everything. And we really didn't even get to see him play on the Olympic level that much because he suffered the injury while playing in the Olympics. Right. So there's this kind of, there's kind of this unknown about, like, you know, Tavares on the big stage because this is a winnable series for the Islanders. I mean, I think you go back to when they made it two years ago and they played the Penguins. No one was really giving them a chance, and they showed well, but they still only made it six games. And it was kind of one of those things where it's like, oh, good, good job, Islanders. You had a good year. You lost in the first round, but it was still a step in the right direction. I think we're at the stage now where you can say, you know, oh, like a guy like Tavares, you know, can he step up and can he do this? Because, you know, honestly, if, if it's a first-round exit for the Islanders this year, I'm not sure you're going to look back on this year and say it was, like, full of positives. Like, you got back in the playoffs, but you should be back in the playoffs. I mean, you had a, a, a sort of mulligan on last year. And then if you don't kind of make any strides, it's like, when is this going to happen? It's not like Tavares is getting old or he's getting over the hill or anything, but at the same time, you want to see him take that step. And when that next step's going to happen, well, it's going to happen in the playoffs. And there's this extra sort of finality to it, right, that they're no, this is their last uh, time. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah that Island. backdrop's going to yeah. be on everything that they do. Is yeah. that this is it for Long Island, so let's make it a, a good going-away party. Anders Lee is absolutely one of my favorite hockey players in the league, too. Um, because he is an American kid that we need more of, a guy who will look at Notre Dame and say, no, I do not want your scholarship to play quarterback at Notre Dame. Instead, I'm going to go to the USHL for a year and prove you deserve, I deserve a college scholarship for hockey, and then I'll be back, and then I'll make my way to the NHL. Something that Sam Bradford at a very early age decided he wasn't willing to do. You know, he was one of the best AAA hockey players in Dallas uh, when he was a peewee and then stopped playing to concentrate on football. Right, so yeah, yeah, Anders yeah. Lee, what he's done for United States hockey, I think is just so huge, you know, because he had a scholarship to play quarterback at Notre Dame and he turned it down and went to the USHL for a year. Yeah, he's had a hell of a year. It's too bad that his yeah. rookie year came in a year where there's like a billion quality rookies because otherwise he'd actually be and get some legit, like, you know, you look at his numbers and it's like the guy should be in the mix in other years for Calder, but he, it's this year it's like the worst possible year because it's just absolutely loaded. Right, time. yeah, a lot of good rookies. All right, um, thanks for the time, what time today. Why don't you give out all the cool information about Twitter, what you're going to be writing about, where to find the articles, the app, anything you think people need to uh, – need to do to hook up with your work and stuff. Well, all right. You check us out at Pro Hockey Talk at NBCSports.com. You can get me on Twitter at HalfordPHT. Uh, we're going to have a ton of stuff coming up. Uh, obviously, I will be closely dialed into the Vancouver-Calgary series, given that's where I'll be working out of at Rogers Arena. Follow us through the rest of the playoffs. And, of course, for the fourth consecutive year, we will be traveling on the road for the entire Stanley Cup final. So that'll be good as well. And we'll have lots of stuff from live on location, do some video stuff and our PHT extras as well. Yeah, and you mentioned the website, but I just want to say, too, the app uh, is one of the best sports apps in the uh, in the app store. Uh, it's called uh, Sports Yeah, yeah, it's great. Sports yeah, it's Talk. very good. Yeah, 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 check it out with the, uh, whatever it is, the iTunes or Apple right. Store. Yeah, really good yeah, way to follow uh, You can bump Pro Hockey Talk feed right up to the very top of, you your, can. of your scrolls. So I have. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> it, that's a great way as well. All right, I'll let you go f- in exchange for a cup final prediction with the winner. 
Uh, I'm sticking with the one that I want to see the most, and that is Chicago-Montreal and Chicago winning. All right, sounds like fun. It's got everything I like. A cup coming to Buffalo, but not going to Canada. <laughs> I'm in. Sign me up. I do like Sounds the, good. I do like the Canadians. I have a soft spot for them, believe it or not. Just something. I think it would be a fantastic, fantastic Stanley Cup final with the two original six. And yeah. That would be a really, really nice one. There's something. And if I don't get that, then I'll take Chicago and the New York Rangers, too. Yeah, I would take that, too. All right, thanks, bud. Thanks. All right, we got to thank Damon Hack and Mike Halford for being on the podcast. Like we said earlier, uh, Will Leach should be on for sure next week, hopefully Jeff Passan. Uh, we're going to reach out to Jenny Ventress and uh, also start setting some up, some stuff up for the draft and uh, some spots on the NBA playoffs. So a busy couple weeks. You can find this week's podcast, last week's podcast, all of our podcasts on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can email us at sportscasters at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at sports underscore casters or Don at Don Lake Sports. Uh, and our podcasts are also available on iTunes and Stitcher and wherever uh, you listen to podcasts. And if for some reason we're not where you want us to be, please uh, let us know and we will uh, work on that if we can. All right. One last thing for me this week. Uh, it is springtime here in Buffalo. And I just want to say Buffalo gets a bad rap for their winters as being like this terrible uh, Arctic time. And this year you might've been right, but what is that? I think the, the Buffalo winter hate is a little bit overrated. What is, I mean, it was nowhere near as bad as Boston this year. Sure. Why doesn't Boston just get piled on for being a sure. miserable city? What is underrated? I think is how lousy our late falls and early springs are. Now today it was been a nice day. It's sunny. Uh, I think almost 60, that's fine. That's I'm perfect with 60, 70 degree weather. But the beginning of the spring and the end of the fall, if you have dogs especially, is nothing but rain and brownness in Buffalo. And I hate that more than anything. Give me give me the snow for six months followed by 70 to 80 degree weather for the other six months, and I'd be fine with it. I don't need spring or fall. Yeah, I love the four seasons. I do love the four seasons, but I have two big dogs, which turns into me mopping my house literally every single day in the, yeah in luckily the my dog weighs 10 pounds and pisses on the porch <laughs> <laughs> so i can i can uh govern his mud activity pretty well <laughs> yeah uh w- one last thing for the show today we've been talking a lot about uh morning radio radio in general the howard sure. stern show yeah uh the opie and anthony show uh anthony's show opie and jimmy uh i thought this week of the howard stern show was a really interesting week uh, where on Monday, if you had listened to the show, you would think, wow, it's done. Really? He's ready to move on. We don't need this show anymore anyway. Uh, he had just come back from 10 days in L.A. where he was working on uh, America's Got Talent. He was miserable. Uh, he was short with everyone. He jumped down Baba Booey's throat for no reason. Took a beating for it online, even apologized on Tuesday, which is very rare. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was just a really flat. It was a bad, bad morning of radio by the Howard Stern standards. And I remember thinking, you know, 
today's show more than any was an opportunity for haters to say he's washed up or an opportunity for people who love the show to say maybe it's just not what I love and it's better if it's gone. Then on Wednesday, it's a fucking awesome show, man. Really? An hour and 20 minute interview with Louis C.K. And it's it's awesome. I know you like uh, Louis' show. Yeah. And like Louis C.K., you got to listen to this interview. I think they put it on their SoundCloud, too, uh, for free. Okay. If not, I'm sure it's on YouTube. It's the best interview anyone's ever done with Louis C.K., and I'm sure it's not even close. Uh, Louis C.K. has great appearances on the Opie and Anthony show. Sure. And even on Wednesday had a good appearance on the Opie and Jimmy show. But when he's on that show, it's not an interview. No, he's just, it's, he's uh, like a guy. Him he's, being he's a part of the atmosphere sort, yeah. there. Uh, this interview that Howard and Louis did was unbelievable. And some people occasionally will complain that the show is too much about the interviews, uh, that we've lost the bits and uh, the fun during the news and the other things that made the Stern show great. But not Wednesday. Uh, the beginning was great. The show being about the show was good. The caller interaction was good. Uh, there was a feud between Bobo and one of the callers. Uh, Benji and Elisa's relationship and Gonzo Shitcock, this guy who got famous for picking on Eric the Midget, was is maybe going to bang Benji's beautiful model New York <laughs> girlfriend. I mean, just the most bizarre stuff wrapped around this unbelievable interview with maybe the greatest living stand-up comedian. Yeah. And it's like you listen to that and think this show just can never end. I'll pay for this forever. So it was just such a weird week because on Monday you have this thought of, oh, let's end it before it gets worse. And on Wednesday you think it's never been better. Now you've said a thousand times on this podcast that Howard Stern is the best interviewer ever. Um, He's everything. Someone – can I call myself an interviewer? Sure. He's everything I want to be. Okay. I listen to his interviews partly because I want to learn how to do that. And you said that the Louis C.K. interview was great, and I've already I pulled it up. It's on YouTube. It's like 87 minutes long. It was amazing. So he did a long interview. Long. So to, More than anyone's ever going to give Louis C.K. in time. Right. My, my question was, uh, everything else you mentioned wasn't about Howard. Would you listen to the show without Howard? Like, does he play a part? In yeah, there's no Howard Stern show without, without Howard, Howard Stern. Yeah, yeah. So the Benji stuff just becomes less interesting when Howard's not. There. Yeah, I mean, I, I I probably assume Howard that's the case, is the but... master that is the master at facilitating those stuff. Okay, you know, he's the master of knowing the right moment to bring that call in, then to mix the other call in. You know, he's such a great facilitator. He's got such a great feel. He knows when to end things. You know, he knows when things are going too long. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a fan of Howard, so I, I think I kind of asked a question I knew the answer to, but I just wanted to hear from someone actually, who still listens to You know, to they him. actually talked about that this week. Did they? Someone said if he would pick a successor sort of in the way that The Daily Show just did. And he right. basically said, no, this is The Howard Stern Show. Sure. And when I decide to end it, The Howard Stern Show ends. You couldn't. I mean, and, the guy, and, whoever did it would And Robin kill. and Fred Bull said, like, yeah, we're we're not interested in doing this show right. without. They, they get killed anyway. Whoever yeah. came into that slot, it'll be interesting if he does decide to leave. Uh, what kind of deal he makes with Sirius in terms of a channel? Would they still have a Howard Stern channel that 
say every day at seven o'clock played an episode. I was uh, thinking it'd be cool. Know, what would they do with it to somehow get the Howard Stern like anthology? But there's too many different companies that would probably he owns be everything. He does. Yeah. The other thing I thought about though is even with commercial breaks, that would probably take you like years, years to yeah. listen to. So I mean. Hey, if it's the greatest thing ever, once he goes off the air, you got nothing but time. It might be it might be a cool little package to put out. But. I would think that if he ends the show, Sirius will still pay him several million dollars for the right highlights. to have a Howard Stern channel that would essentially be, you know, clip shows. What you're saying, yeah, clip shows and. Maybe smaller guys would have a show still, like guys yeah, like you know. Maybe you have the the Gary Delabate show, sure. But you, the thing you Gary's could, rich too, though. The thing like, you couldn't totally do, the thing you couldn't do, is run that at six. That would have to be on like at a time where it's very clear you're not playing it instead of the Howard Stern show. Sure. Otherwise, it'd be set up to fail. Yep.